everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in, cron- uh, excuse me, in continuity order. I am so excited to welcome my friends, uh, Elliot Brown and, uh, and Peter Sanderson back to the show today. And I'm beyond honored to be meeting Mike Carlin for the first time. Mike was working at DC. I messaged him a while back about coming on the show and he said, uh, please reach out to me once I have retired or announced my retirement. And boy, the next day did I. <laughs> so, Mike, I'm, uh, I'm very excited to meet you. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time. Uh, let's, uh, let's start out by just hearing a little bit of uh, Mike's story, if we can start there. And then a lot of today's episode is going to be just you guys kind of reminiscing because we're going we're gonna to share uh, some of your history together as we go. I will note, we're going to release this in conjunction with our normal issue review of uh, X-Men The Hidden Years, which will be at the end of this episode. So for our listeners who are looking for that content, you'll find that after this initial conversation. Uh, so let's begin by welcoming Mike. Hi, Mike. Hello. How Thank are you? you? Thank you for waiting until after I was done with DC and then a couple of months so that I could have an actual day off. <laughs> Which, uh, because you were not the only person who attacked me that weekend, and it was pretty crazy. And uh, I'm happy to cooperate with everybody. I mean, when I worked at DC, they had their rules about whether people could be spokesmodels for DC and whatever, even if I was talking about the old Marvel years, which I guess that bothered them somehow. It didn't seem to affect anything as far as I was concerned. But I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to learn about the X-Men. I never heard of this uh, comic or character or whatever it is. So this will be interesting for me. Uh, One of the reasons I'm such a big fan is I am a former writer on the Marvel Comics handbooks. I've had uh, huge (laughs) honors of having Elliot and Peter both on to talk about their journeys. Uh, Mike, I would love to start with just hearing a little bit of your journey as a comic (laughs) fan into a comic professional, if you'll share a little of your origin story. So those guys, I hope, apologize to you for having to have that job. (laughs) It's a hard job and a thankless job. I would agree. <laughs> uh, I I got into comics uh, the way a lot of people did. I mean, I was little and I was watching TV and there would be Adventures of Superman reruns. <clears throat> and then I was like the perfect age for the Batman TV show when that came along. But luckily for me, I had a mother who did not throw away my comics. She encouraged me to read comics because she was a comic book fan. And she was somebody who loved Superman and loved Wonder Woman. She didn't really think about Batman too much, but I had the TV show for that. And uh, she would read my comics when I went to bed. So uh, she was awesome. She's the person who brought me to my first comic convention in 1969. And, uh, you know, she would run around and, and find deals and haggle with people. And I would get artists to do sketches and and things. So it was... uh, it was awesome, you know, so she was she's the big impetus and the big reason that I I was in it and encouraged. My father did not understand it at all, uh, but he tried. And uh, at the same time, uh, I, I, I decided I wanted to draw comics. I'm a, not a good artist, but <laughs> I'm good enough to get by. <clears throat> and I went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan which is a a vocational high school that uh, caters to people who want to be artists. And they had a cartooning wing. And uh, the the guy who ran that 
department suggested me uh, to be an intern at DC Comics in 1974, and uh, I went and did that. So I've been around DC for almost 50 years, uh, on and off. Uh, off being that I did then did finish college, uh, which was at the School of Visual Arts, where I had Harvey Kurtzman and Will Eisner as teachers. That also was inspiring. Uh, and and by then, because I was an intern at DC, I. And I Xeroxed Swamp Thing pages by Bernie Wrightson and uh, Manhunter pages by uh, Walt Simonson. I knew that I was not going to be able to be a comic book artist. So I said, let's be a cartoonist and a funny artist. So I thought I'd go down that route. And having Harvey Kurtzman as a teacher uh, in that area was a smart thing. And with Will Eisner, I learned about sequential art and all that. And it was great. The guest speakers that they would bring in were amazing. It was, you know, just uh, awesome to 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 see people like, uh, you know, I mean, they they had everybody come in and guest speak, which was great. And for as far as cartoonists go, having Terry Gilliam come in and talk to you while Monty Python was on TV was beyond inspirational for me. It was uh, it was amazing. Uh, and then right when I left uh, the School of Visual Arts, I brought my portfolio up to Marvel Comics. Uh, and Larry Hama, the editor of uh, Crazy Magazine, uh, which was their version of MAD, I figured I would not be able to crack MAD's usual gang of idiots because that was a pretty closed shop and and remained that way for a lot of years. Uh, but MAD, uh, crazy, cra crazy was like, really accepting a lot of new artists at that time. Bob Camp started in the same issue that I did. And uh, Mimi Pond was one of the artists there as well. So it's like, it, it, it was pretty awesome to be a part of that. And he hired me right away. He said he didn't think my art was as good as my writing. So I said, I accept your judgment and I agree with you. <laughs> but uh, still, I ended up doing a lot of stuff for Crazy Magazine. And then just being up in the office, uh, when Mark Grunewald got promoted to being an editor, he said, Larry Hama called me and said, do you want to be an assistant editor? And I said, yeah, I don't know what that is, but yes, I do. I, I think I would be good at that. And I interviewed with Mark Grunewald and, uh, and he selected me to be his assistant and we became a, a great team, great team to work together, great team as friends. And uh, uh, it, it was perfect for me. And uh, that's when I met Elliot Brown and Peter Sanderson. Do you guys that's recall when you first met? I would love to start there. <laughs> I don't recall when we first met. Well, you would have been working on the, his, the Marvel handbook, uh, I'm yeah. sure. And oh, yeah. But I mean, I don't remember the exact day or the exact circumstances. Oh, so I, it was I, like I was meeting everybody at once when I went up there. I remember. I, you, I had, remember. you had a blue shirt on. And uh, no, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was February eighteenth, nineteen eighty three, <laughs> and you were bragging about banging twelve foot hookers. I remember that. <laughs> oh no, that's wrong. It was eighty one. Oh darn. Okay. Eighty one. Oh, that no, not you, Peter. Him. Nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one or eighty one foot hookers. Which which hookers replaced with twelve feet? That was the weirdest thing. Eighty three. <laughs> no, no, no. 
You remember you used to you used to work in a rug factory. Yes, I did. Yes. And I worked yes. with 28 hookers. That's what I there did. It is. That's exactly right. OK, was, I, I, what my comedy wasn't pure, but my memory is still just as shaky. I stuck to the comic book thread. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to blow your gig, man. OK. Oh, I, you can I, tell I the love... side of Mike Carlin. Yeah. Hookers. Comic professionals, what's the difference? <laughs> I would love to hear some of your early reminiscences about working on the handbooks. Uh, one of the things we've talked about on the show before, we talked about the all-nighters that were pulled, the uh, the slaving over the copy machine to get everything lined up just right, just stacks of comics everywhere. Uh, what was that like for you guys? That must have been a crazy time. You guys, go. Well, for me, it was different from the other two because... I was working basically at home. I'd get, I was a late sleeper, but I'd get up and like towards noon and then I'd spend the afternoon typing out Marvel Universe handbook entries and on back on a typewriter so that if I, this is before computers, so if I made a mistake, I had to redo the whole page. <laughs> and then towards evening, I would go in on the subway to Marvel and move into Mark's office and sit at Mike's desk, I guess, and uh, type more entries and stick around until like uh, 11 p.m. or so and then fight my way through the hookers who are outside Marvel at that time <laughs> that is and true. Get, get back home on the subway like 1 a.m. and then start it all over again the next day. You know, that's what the comic book industry is missing these days. There's not enough hookers. That, that, <laughs> screaming on the streets and banging one of the big problems. But this was in the early 80s at Park Avenue South. Yeah, we didn't realize it was such a rough neighborhood until we were well moved in and stayed there well, overnights and weekends. Well, yeah, yeah. staying past 6 o'clock is what, when the rough neighborhood began. And uh, the, big, big, the big trick for us was that if we did sleep over one of us would pick the short straw and have to run to Smiler's delicatessen to feed the rest of the gang. And uh, that was always a, a treacherous run. Treacherous how so? Oh, the neighborhoods. Oh, just yeah. bad neighborhoods. <laughs> I love that. that bad I love pimps and hookers. Yeah, really. We're not talking about Spider-Man. We're just talking about hookers. <laughs> yeah, now we're talking about actual prostitutes, okay? Never mind the rugs. All right, I got off on the wrong foot. Always got to come. See, up. that's why I didn't want to read these X-Men comics. Right. They, they, they didn't have enough hookers in me. <laughs> leave, leave Chris out of this. Hey, thank you. <laughs> Uh, now, I, I I know we've talked a little bit about Mark and launching uh, Omniverse, uh, his own his own magazine. And uh, Mike, were you there when Mark kind of first conceptualized the idea of uh, the handbooks themselves? Yep, I was there. And uh, right from the minute he thought of it and Shooter approved it, I dreaded what was coming because I, I don't I'm not naturally a a a continuity guy. I mean, I, it's a necessary evil in the business that we were in <clears throat> and I, I got it and I would always try to deal with it, but it was, it, it, it's hard to get it all right. And, uh, you know, we had, we had, uh, my, one of my jobs on that book was to find the, what they called action shot to go with the new art for a character. There'd always be a little panel or two of the character using their power uh, from an old comic book and Marvel had a dusty old closet really that had all the old film in it. And I had to find the old issues 
and the black and white art that we could then hand over to the stat room or Elliot, who was who would fill in because he knew how to run the stat machine uh, to do that stuff. And it was it was tedious. It was a hard job for me. And it's like, that's not my zone. I mean, I was much more fly by night and, uh, and, and, you know, come up with new jokes rather than look back and see what the old jokes were all about. <laughs> so it was, it was, it, that was the job part for me. The part that made it fun was the people, the people part, Mark and Elliot were fun. And it was a fun time to sleep over. We did, we worked, through whole weekends and we had some uh whole weeks <laughs> dangerous encounters because uh i guess the time the stories can be told uh, elliot you may have already told about us uh taking showers at the marvel office i've, I've not I heard this it, story i put it briefly in print i don't know who uh, how many people saw it however yes <laughs> one of the one of the best weekends and oh 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 old mr smarty pants who took a picture then not me no i didn't take any no, pictures was, like well we were naked so there was no pictures i would have done it anyway there's fig no, leaves no, no, I no. Do there it. is there is no worse feeling than being naked in the president's office oh i don't know uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> unless you're the president <laughs> yeah well i wasn't <laughs> and i wasn't clearly not going to be the president if i got caught uh, so, yeah, shower in uh, Jim Galton's office. He was the only guy who had a shower at Marvel, and uh, we were three or four days stinky by that point. So it, we had to shower if we were going to. No, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You're the one who lived out in Brooklyn. Us two lived in the city. We could go home if we really needed to. Yeah, you but had Mark a date one night. Mark wanted to work. <laughs> yeah, he did. There he was nobody being home. allowed to go home. He went home because he had I know. a wife. I know. Yeah. We, you, you had a date and you needed to shower. That's the first time you were going, Oh, my, my bounce card. Sorry. Well, I guess and you that were, date didn't work out though. So Jim Galton shower is not the answer. The best story was that we found shopping bags full of towels. Remember that? In a yeah, they were in the outside? licensing department. The licensing yep. department had. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I wish I wish it were that colorful. No, no, no. These were Galton's personal towels. And here's why it's important. I, I didn't use those. Yes, you did. Because we <laughs> we flapped them dry and we folded them back up and stuck them back in the bag <laughs> to be with used with, and on. With our cooties on them. Yes. Well, yours. I don't remember I ever showered. I don't think I showered in there. You, you haven't showered since I, then, I don't think. Ah, uh, this is in smell vision huh? I see. <laughs> Great. Yeah, feels that way. Um, now, you guys and Mark, were there fun. other people that were on that initial team that would do the overnights with you? It was mostly us. Yeah, it was 99%. Uh, Jack and, stayed over and, a couple of times. John Morelli would hang out just because he was a buddy. He was a pal. And that was there was a blizzard one weekend. That was the big one. In, That's true. We all April. did get stuck there. Yeah. And we were there from Friday to Tuesday because there was seven feet of snow on the on the street. I, I took a cab home Tuesday night. Maybe it was mm -hmm. Monday night. And I remember there were dump trucks piling snow two stories tall on the, on the yeah, street was, corners. That was pretty funny because even people like yeah. Ralph Macchio got stuck there. And we all had to go out and help him push his car to start <laughs> it in the snow. <laughs> Because he, he had yeah. to go home. Yes, he, they, he, he, no, he, home he has to get home. No, yeah, and sleep yeah. in his own bed. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with his own dog. Um, after yeah. after all that work and those original handbooks came out, do you remember what the professional and fan reception was like? 
oh, the, the fans loved it. I mean, yeah. obviously it was a, a big hit and it spawned years and years of Marvel handbooks and I think it even spin offs the, the movies DC's who's who. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Also spawned, I really I didn't spawned get, the movies. I really didn't get a sense of the popularity till years later when I started meeting people who had grown up reading these things and would just love them. What's the dog? What's the dog? People still talk about these original handbooks. Uh, I yes. I see creators who will use them for reference in their stories. I even know I even know people who will uh, take them around at the cons and have people redraw certain images from the the <laughs> handbooks and, and use them as references. I was in the early two thousands team, so we were doing the updates, and there were several versions of that still, and it was still a lot of work, even with internet databases yeah. to support us. But I can't imagine what it was like back then. My word, yeah, no it internet was, was, was tough. You know, no internet probably helped us too, because honestly, the the instant feedback might have been depressing to us. We don't know. So all all we, we had was plowed ahead. MTV. Yeah, we plowed ahead. If you look at the first issue of the Marvel handbooks and you see the word count and how <laughs> yeah. small it is compared mm. to how it grew by the last issue. Oh, um, no, no. The third issue. It exploded <laughs> in the third issue. Well, One, you, each you guy were, had a page. You were the typesetter. So. I was the typesetter. Yeah, it's, I'm very <laughs> sensitive to that. Yeah, there may have been two columns tops or one column in the first book. It was one by column third on book, every page. One column. And by the third book, it had to be corner to corner, four or five columns because we stuffed them in there. Yeah. And that's the artwork was getting smaller and smaller. And it was really, it was yeah. bizarre. I and mean, there was Mark people, wrote the first one all by himself. But by yeah. issue three, I was doing a lot of the writing too. So he's bringing in more writers at that yeah. point. Yeah. I'm also picturing those like little appendixes you had in the back with like the teeny tiny subsets of text, like covering all the characters that you didn't touch in the book. Yeah, that was my duty. I, I wrote the appendices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was tough. <laughs> he said duty. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am worrying about Hooker. Oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> but we used to. There was there was a point though where we were adding so much stuff. Elliot and Mark were were adding concepts. That people, some people in the office were getting mad at us because they said, "Oh, you should, you shouldn't be putting that in the handbook. It should be in the stories. We should put that in the stories." I said, "Now you can put it in the stories. It's there. If somebody else thought of it for you, and you can use it. That's what it's there for." The the handbooks also they did have to bring you something new, or else they weren't worth the price, really. Except that there was no internet back well, then. Sometimes I mean, with, in, in my case. I, the entries I wrote, if I was uh, if I was going to put in something new or or establish a new fact, I would talk to the writers who are most associated with the characters. So I talked That's a lot good. to Chris Claremont about the X Men and to Walt Simonson about Thor and to Frank Miller about Daredevil, and and I was really excited the first time that somebody, I it might have been Louise Simonson, used something that I had invented for the handbook in a story. Yeah, they, it was cool. That was definitely a cool aspect uh, of the job. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, a lot, sometimes stuff was originated in the handbook. And uh, that was uh, really great stuff. I mean, there was some funny things where Mark had me call uh, Larry Niven one time. Wow. On the phone. Yeah, I remember that. It was like 
first of all, I was like, uh, why am I, why are you making me do this? Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm scared of this. And he was the greatest guy. He was the nicest guy. And this, this was, I think this was an Ant-Man thing where it was about shifting mass to a different dimension or something. Mm-hmm. And Larry Niven basically told me that Mark, what Mark wrote was great and, and totally would work. And that stuff got into the handbook. I could be remembering which character or which situation it was. Oh, no, it was Ant Man. It was definitely Ant Man. I thought it was no, that. That, yeah. that was a good thing about the handbook because you, especially Elliot, was good at this, trying to come up with believable science fiction explanations for things that just seemed impossible. Like where the Hulk, when Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk, where does the extra weight come from? Right. And, and that's, it turned out to be an extra dimensional thing. Yeah, that's that's the extra dimensional stuff. I did put that in. Also, the pin particle. I, I remember sitting yes. in Ralph's pool. We were all at Ralph's pool, and I was yelling at him because here's here's the illustrations you're showing me from the books. You see these things on the canisters? That 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 can't be a gas. It doesn't work that way. It, it, it's something <laughs> else. And then he's punching, and he's the same weight, and he's not the same weight. Now he's the size of an egg. He's got the strength of a man. It's it's physics. It's got to be physics. It comes from another dimension. Got to be. And so now, when they when the Ant Man movies talk all about pin particles, that's your doing. That is my doing. However, I'm delighted to contribute it, and I'm happy to acknowledge it here, freely <laughs> and without reservation. It would be. Does Marvel actually put, give you a credit on the Ant Man movies, though? No. I'd love to see it, but no, 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 no. I don't think anybody read the Ant Man entry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, those were different times. Uh, very. Ant-Man was never going to have a movie back then. I, yeah. yeah, very happy accident. Yeah. When you're doing when you're doing these types of entries, we're covering a lot of things. You got to cover all the appearances, you got to make sense of the powers, you got to try to fill in the blanks and figure out what's in continuity. One of the entries I did uh that was probably one of the largest headaches and this is even now 15 years ago was for the character Claw, the guy made out of sound. Yep. Uh, trying <laughs> to figure out trying to figure out what the limitations and expansions were for his powers were, but also there's like eight different versions of how he killed Black Panther's dad and like, which one's right. And all of this light and continuity got so headachey. Do you guys remember any particular headaches you faced? In, uh, well, for me, panels? my biggest challenge was writing the entries about Captain America and the Red Skull, because Stan and Jack had basically established two different stories about Captain America at the end of World War II in Europe. One was, you know, the story about uh, being in England and Zemo's trying to sell, steal this plane and Captain America and Bucky jump aboard it and it blows up over the Atlantic and Cap goes into suspended animation. But Stan Jack also did a story in which during the fall of Berlin, the Red, Captain America is fighting the Red Skull in a bunker that's then buried by bo- bombshells from dropped from above and Cap gets out and the Red Skull goes into goes into suspended animation. So I had to write the Red Skull entry and the Cap's entries that in such a way that Cap in the last days of the war in Europe was going back and forth between Europe, Europe, Europe and England. So he could both stories could fit into continuity. Nice that you worked that hard. I, I would have picked one. <laughs> you know, they were both such important stories though. I I couldn't True. just dismiss one. Mm, that was the curse. We really were slaves to the material. In more ways than one. I mean, I, I'd like to I'd like to praise my my colleagues because years later, when I was doing the Marvel Atlas, uh, there was a whole bunch of new guys from the internet side yeah. of the Marvel universe, and they would they would snow me with thirty pictures of of reference. 
These guys picked one or two. <laughs> and if I, if I sat in the office and it was the right one, it told me everything I needed to know. If I sat in the office and these guys came in and started telling me stuff, all I did was take a couple of notes. I was good to go. And these, and the, and the later stuff, the Atlas stuff, I had to boil it down. I had to, I sat there staring at it for days. It was very, un, um, uh, it reminded me how good these guys were. That's really the most important thing that not, it's hard to say you're a scholar of comics, although Peter, of course, is a scholar of comics, but, and Mike, by dint of his long years, is a scholar of comics. However, I am not. And I was very glad to have these guys doing it all for me, essentially. Well, I was just, I was, a very, I was very impressed with the Marvel Atlas and I've got a copy of my bookshelf right here. Oh, and nice. so I'm grateful that you had anything to do with it. It's very good. I did the maps. It was torture. Those guys, those guys were... <laughs> nutty oh i'm just but amazed at how the that the marvel atlas and also the the uh the special that they did about all the gods on in the marvel universe mm. i was just amazed at uh, how much research they were able to do yeah these that's guys are the internet these guys. guys are my contemporaries this is the people i yeah, right that's with that's and right. i was that's, not that's involved that's in those two books oh too bad <laughs> i don't i don't remember you but that's okay yeah those guys were those guys were uh they sure, they sure, they had a word count similar to ours, except on the internet, where life is cheap. <laughs> uh, Mike, yeah. about, do you have any memories of a, of a particularly challenging entry? Uh, uh, not really. I mean, because the 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 writer guys had it harder than me because I was just the art find guy, and I'd be uh, part of pasting up and art correcting uh, for 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 stuff. So there was not a lot of challenges there. Except for, like I said, finding the art. I mean that that closet of old film mm. was a dusty, horrifying place, and probably one of the most unhealthy rooms I ever was in, <laughs> just in terms of breathing. <clears throat> Worked in know, the and it was like, it, and at the same time, I was like, "Wow, I'm in the closet at Marvel. This is pretty cool." It, I was young and new, and they, I was into that. Uh, when I when I worked for Marvel, I was also in the closet, but different interpretation. Well, it was probably a different closet ah. by the time. Oh, oh, I get it. Oh, I see, I see what you're saying. Well, I, I I did come out of that dusty closet, and it wasn't the same as your closet. Uh, my closet was metaphorical. Yes. <laughs> now, no, you guys... I never met a four I didn't like. So go ahead. <laughs> I never met a morpho I didn't like. That's all I know. Oh, sorry. You, for guys, you guys were kind of DC fans growing up in a lot of ways. Uh, and yes. Mike, you've spent a lot of your career working at DC. How would you I, compare the two? And that might be I, a dangerous I, I, question. I was a DC fan because my mother was a DC fan. I mean, she there was no real Marvel when she was a kid. And, uh, I mean, she also, she loved the EC horror comics, so she was pretty cool, but mm. Marvel didn't really exist when she was younger and reading comics, so she never got into that stuff. And then I didn't get into it, partly because of, you know, the 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 practical, you know, look of the Marvel comics. They were not distributed as well. They were, the coloring was browner and grayer. It was like, the backgrounds were not as colorful. The DC comics... And, and, you know, as I've found out in my years in the business, DC was kind of controlling the distribution of all the comics. So they were kind of keeping Marvel down for a long time. And I just didn't uh, take a chance on the stuff. So I didn't get into it just because they didn't look as, as fun to me. 
Uh, and then, of course, when I was really starting to get old enough to really understand everything, I had uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams doing Green Lantern and Batman. And it was just they were revelations compared to the old DC stuff. And uh, it, it was uh, very exciting for me. So I was into that. As far as working at a company, when I was an intern at DC in 74, it was still kind of old DC. It was still more of a corporate uh, atmosphere. There was a lot of suits and ties in the office, at least shirts and ties for the artists uh, and editors. Uh, and it was like, uh, it was a little stiff, yeah, I, 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 ha I have to say. And then when I got to Marvel, it really was fun. And Marvel was the bullpen and the Marvel offices and the people. And Mark was a big part of the morale thing there. But it I, I knew it was the good old days while I was there. It was definitely, you know, people in sneakers and T-shirts. And it was just a fun place to be. And there was not a lot of fighting going on. There was maybe territorial stuff uh, character-wise or creator story-wise. But everybody loved each other. It was really pretty amazing, you know. And, you know, to, to be a little controversial, I would say that there, there was only one person that people kind of uni united against uh, there. And, uh, and he was against a lot of us, too. So <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about, but we don't need to name names. Today. Yes, you do. <laughs> Everyone does. Robbie Carousella? <laughs> sorry, um, sorry. Poor Robbie. No. Poor Robbie. Not Robbie. No. I know. I'm not going to say it either. It He's was John dead. Galvin. <laughs> Poor John. Yeah. <laughs> Aw. Okay, so I have an X-Men story. Want to get this back on track? Oh, I have yeah. a small X-Men story. I was I was Wheezy Jones's assistant after right after I was uh, Tom DeFalco's assistant on the Spider Line, and getting into the X Men, I think I was around 117, 118, 114, somewhere around there. And the story involved I can't remember everything. I just remember the images. The story it was drawn by Paul Smith, and he was and, you know and seeing his art in, in you know in, in my hands was wonderful a wonderful experience. Oh, he's amazing. However. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He still is. Um, he was. Um, he was. Uh, uh, Wolverine was in Japan, and he was fighting a guy in a Shogun suit and a Ronin. Oh, the guy. samurai. That is a samurai. That's it. Okay. So, so I'm I'm looking at the pages, and I'm saying, Hey, Wheezy. Um, you know, and I don't know if she'd seen them yet at this. I'm proofreading. You know, she, often Wheezy would just dump things on my desk, which is fine. That was agreed upon. And I'm looking through it, and. Paul Smith had drawn the claws right through this guy. And, you know, it was like, oof, right in the chest. And the spikes of the claws are sticking out his back. And there's blood all over the place. And I'm like, Weezy, this doesn't seem normal. And she says, oh, my God. Oh, Smitty did that. Oh, fix it, Elliot. All right. Okay. So I took his art and I took some white out. And, a, and a, a, I, what I used was a, a technical fountain pen. And I whited out the artboard and I fixed it. I didn't know what else to do. I should have made a stat. Yes, I know. And I, I, I'm sorry, Paul. I'm sorry, Smitty. I did that. But that was me. So I cleaned up all of this this mess on the on the back. We had to change the coloring and everything at that point. So that's my excellent story. Something I noticed uh, in Frank Miller's Daredevil 
is that whenever Electra would stab someone with her side, Frank would show the shirt of the guy's That's back right. bulging yeah. out, but he wouldn't show the side coming through. So this right. connects. This Smart was all, yeah, yeah. This was comics code rules. That's what that was. Yeah. You yeah, couldn't yeah. search. You couldn't show blood, and uh, obviously wounds with penetration. You could not show it. Yeah, that yeah, that's exactly. That's what I thought, but. Hey, Smitty is a force unto himself, except when I'm sicked on him. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the editor's job was to, to catch that stuff and fix it. And the artists and writers, their job was to try to see what they could get away with. Absolutely. Yeah, so, look at the draw that I got it first. So staying <laughs> on the X-Men path, uh, Mike, you have a long history at Marvel before moving to DC and having an even longer history as a writer and an editor. You've written some of my favorite stories and edited many of my favorite characters. Oh. But while we're on this uh, particular topic, you were the editor on the books that put Jean Grey at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. Oh, yeah. I would love to hear a little bit. I mean, this being a men show. All that stuff was the beginning of the end of my career there at Marvel. Tell us this story. What Ooh. happened here? Oh, this was uh, the, be the beginning of the X Factor series. And it was purely Bob Layton's idea to do X Factor and to get the original X-Men back together. And Shooter was all on board. And uh, Shooter and, and Bob were tight at that point. They were best buddies. Literally. They would hang out and... So uh, Bob Layton's ideas got a little bit of a precedent over a lot of things. Uh, and I was the editor on the Fantastic Four that John Byrne was working on at the time. And he wanted anything he could do to put the original X-Men back together again because it would bother Chris Claremont, I think. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, that this is this is one of the fights that I remember of people not getting along there. And I kind of was an innocent bystander for for the a lot of this. But uh yeah, so they did that story. They brought Gene back. X Factor started. I was the editor of X Factor. Bob Layton and uh Jackson Geist drew wrote and drew the first issue. Uh Jim Shooter hated the first issue and had us redo a double-sized issue in less than a month and it was when he got you know the first issue finally got approved then the second issue came in and he wanted to redo that one from scratch and i almost had a nervous breakdown so i i basically i told him i said look jim clearly you should be the editor of this book because i don't know what i'm doing on it and i quit this title i said i'm not quitting marvel but I quit working on this and you should get someone else to do it. Ouch. So he took me off of most of the superhero stuff I was on and put me on star comics and, and things like transformers and, and stuff that was uh, more toyetic. And that was just a precursor to him saying, I think you shouldn't work here anymore. And mm. that was the end of me. How many so, years were you there? I was I was there for a year as a freelancer for crazy and then almost four years on staff. Okay. That uh, that yeah, early, four years. That early X Factor run is crazy. Uh there's so many weird pieces to it. They're pretending to be mutant hunters, but they're also pretending to be heroes. There's heroes with different costumes, the groups have different names. 
Yeah. Uh, you could tell just a few issues later, uh, Louis Simonson particularly, but other people tried to really clean up those ideas and yeah. make the concepts a little bit more saleable. And then uh, things get a little more digestible after that. Do you feel like you you said part of the launch of this book was specifically to spite Claremont? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't think it was to spite Claremont. I think Shooter thought it was a good idea, and it, it, at, unfortunately, he knew that that would irk the ex office. And uh, to have any ex project happen outside the ex office was the problem more than anything. It was more than sure. even that specific idea. So it was just like he. he 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 allowed something that had the potential to be a landmine be a landmine to see Jean Grey revived in the pages of the Fantastic Four and the Avengers alone was a wild thing to uh, to, to yeah. even read years later. It's it's still fascinating. Well, well yeah. the irony in all this is that the original Dark Phoenix saga, you probably know this, that Jean survived in the original version, yeah. and that Shooter, it was Shooter who said, "No, Chris." Yeah, she wiped out this whole planet, which I think was Byrne's idea, wiping out the asparagus people. And she's got to pay for it. And Chris is saying, no, no, no. She was insane at the time. She's being controlled by the Phoenix. I don't care. She would have said she either has to go to prison for, for life and be tortured there. This shows you the way <laughs> Shooter's mind works. Or you've got to kill her off. So Chris and John decide, OK, we'll kill her off. I mean, that's better than what's the torture for eternity. So uh, they did that. But even though Chris didn't want Jean to die, once she was dead and it had such a powerful impact on the readership, he wanted to keep her dead to keep the, to keep that tragedy, you know, a, a major factor in the Marvel Universe. And Chris even went to the trouble of creating a double for Jean to give the Scots to fall in love with her instead. Yeah. And so it's, so it's ironic that Shooter, who decreed that Jean would die, would be instrumental in bringing her back. Yep. Well, I mean, honestly, I I never really had a horse in that race at all. I really do feel like I was uh, collateral damage on on mm -hmm. that whole that whole thing. I felt like I was doing what my boss wanted me to do, uh, and it turned out that that was a mistake. <laughs> you also write that there was an issue about at that point. Chris was pretty much at the, the sense that Marvel basically was that X Men are Chris's characters. And Chris would no Weezy got to write the X Men because Chris and Weezy got along so well. Yeah, but it's like I remember Chris was upset when uh, Barry Windsor Smith died doing the Wolverine origin story in Marvel Comics Presents. But this was yeah. all inevitable because the X Men had grown so big because of Chris's success with it that it was inevitable that it was going to multiply into more books than Chris could write himself. Yep. Another interesting part of the X Factor launch is it's one of the most hated Cyclops stories of all time. Uh, Cyclops, <laughs> Cyclops was married to Madeline Pryor. They had their right. baby. He leaves them behind, goes back to the X Factor to be with his old girlfriend, but then doesn't tell Gene that he's married for a long time, which is a lot of people still all these years later are like, no, like Cyclops is irredeemable. <laughs> oh, they should kill him. They have multiple times <laughs> forever. <laughs> well, what bothers me about the early X Factor yeah. is that, as as you uh, sort of alluded to, originally they were X Factor were pretending to be mutant hunters, acting like mutants are a menace, whereas they're actually the original X Men helping the mutants tr get to train the training them in their powers. And it's like this now seems just so politically incorrect. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, it, it, I kind of obviously it worked out okay for me to be sent to DC. Uh, oh yes, I mean uh, it, 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 I I wasn't literally sent there, but there, that was a period <laughs> where there was a lot of talent going from Marvel to DC. Yeah, because uh, it was becoming a little more oppressive uh, as a creator, and uh, you know Denny O'Neill had just left staff at marvel to go back to dc and uh he was the first phone call i made after i got let go and i just sure. called him and i said hey guess what i got let go and he goes well there's i don't think there's any jobs over here but i'll take you to lunch and i went to lunch and i got to meet all the dc people and uh it was very cool and you, and you were there and for you were, decades yeah and it was good because bird was one of the major people going from marvel to dc and you would work with them so well on Superman, on the Superman relaunch. Well, and I, I think he wasn't really getting along with the DC editor that he was working with. Right. And, and he said, I can deal. Mike is a free agent now. I could work with him. We got along. And uh, the, I mean, the, my big secret of working with anybody uh, is, is assessing what they're bringing to the table and how the world is reacting to it. It's like, if you gave me the X-Men books, even though I wasn't necessarily a fan of the X-Men books, I wouldn't change a thing that Claremont was doing because mm -hmm. he had his finger on some pulse that I didn't have, you know? So, and I felt the same way about Byrne. It's like, if Byrne is doing Fantastic Four, I'm not going to be a heavy-handed editor. I'm going to be uh, hopefully a facilitating editor. And uh, whereas other books that I had at DC at the time, I might influence a little more you know, strongly, uh, but, and, and obviously the minute burn left the Superman books that I felt like that was when I became the editor of Superman and, mm. uh, and, you know, the books have the, a different tone because of, because yes. of that. And um, because of the people who I called to hire and who worked for, for me, and we all agreed to what we wanted to do with the character of Superman. Uh, up until then, it was John's show, and that I would never have really screwed with that because it was working. You know, mm -hmm. it would have been silly of me to kind of screw it up. We've spent a lot of time on my show talking about Neil Adams and more recently John Byrne. And it seems to be that's what I'm hearing is the best way to work with Byrne is to just stay very hands off and kind of let him follow his vision and let him do. Uh, what he said. We're, we've been doing the hidden years for the last yes. uh, few months on my show, which is all burned. An underrated series. It, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good a series. Good I mean, I, I definitely would look at it because I like the art. I like what John does. And Tom Palmer was uh, was inking it, I believe. And it's like that to me is Marvel art. Yeah. You know, that, yep. That I, I understand the omnibus version of omnibus version of that's coming out, and finally, they should have reprinted those stories long ago. Yeah. You know, Mike, another weird lasting impact that you've had on the X-Men universe is because Claremont picked up a character that you were involved in helping create later. Uh, you were working on the magazine Kazar and brought the literal guy from Dante's Inferno into the book, Mr. Belasco himself. I, well, I didn't create that character. I didn't create that character. That He was in the Kazar book before I got there. But that you were heavily fun. involved in those early days. I would love to hear a little bit about your memories of how it was to research this character and bring him into uh, the Kazar books. It's he's a weird guy. <laughs> well, he's the devil. I mean, the, we Marvel had a lot of devils, and DC has a lot of devils, and that he was just the devil to me. And ultimately, 
it, the weirdest thing about working with Velasco and on Kazar at the time was that Chris Claremont had to come to me and say, hey, can I use Velasco? That's weird. Ooh, ooh, ooh. He, that's unusual. And I, of course, said, let me think about it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> Go for it. Make Belasco popular, please. <laughs> right. You know, what so is it? It, it really was like it was it was easy to, you know, pick up the book. I guess Brent Anderson was doing the book. Uh, and who was the, who was writing it? Why am I blind? Bruce Jones. Yes. Bruce Jones was, was Bruce Jones. writing the book at the time. And I think. Uh, Danny Fingeroth hired me because it was kind of a book that had a lighter tone and a little mm -hmm. bit of more humor to it. And uh, I was very happy to play in that little sandbox. Elliot's got one sitting next to his computer. What are random oh, hey. have just sitting there? That's, a, no, <laughs> that's number, Bruce number Jones. Number one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's the one. Yep. Now, don't ask uh, me why. Marvel had a lot of uh, kind of ancillary weird titles all through their all through their run from the very beginning. They'll print a book as one thing and then change the title to something else, but the numbering will stay. We see this happen a number of times. And I know in the 80s, at least, there were some books like Bizarre Adventures and Crazy and Marvel Age that seemed to have a lot of this. What are some of the more obscure corners of the Marvel Universe that you remember fond fondly? Uh, maybe even any of these anthology <laughs> magazines. Does it have to be fondly? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we did things like, and this was kind of inspired by what Danny Fingeroth was doing with the Kazar books. The Marvel Fumetti book was a, a funny thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the yep. Marvel No Prize book was was funny. This is an era where they were really looking at what Marvel was doing that DC didn't do. And Assistant Editors Month. Yeah, and, well, and that, and there is that too. Uh, people, uh, they, they still argue about its value. Uh, to me, it was really fun. It was mm -hmm. just, I, I got to put DC's go-go checks on my titles, and that was very thrilling to me. Because uh, uh, as a DC guy, when I was a kid, that was really fun. And uh, I got I did I got to work with David Letterman, but not really. I would just send stuff mm -hmm. to his office, and they That's pretty uh, close approve it or not approve it. And mm -hmm. uh, he did send me a letter saying he liked what we did, so that was very nice. That's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. And this uh, was an issue of the Avengers, in case you don't know, <laughs> with the Avengers being on Letterman's show. Yeah, and Letterman's right. show was a pretty new thing at that point. But and uh, but Roger Stern is like kind of a comedy o file. So he wanted to do this uh, uh, tribute to a, a show he was enjoying at the time, which was uh, Letterman. And uh, I, I got to talk Letterman to I got to talk to Bob Hall about the famous uh, Saturday Night Live issue uh, that That's he cool. worked on with Claremont, which was also fun. You guys looked like you were having fun back then. When I look at these uh, in Kazar, as an example. In the in the borders uh, of the book, there's like photographs of the team and the editors working together with little captions. It, it like it looked like a fun place to work for the most part. It was, I mean, and then we were really basically allowed to do whatever we wanted uh, up to a point. I mean, I think it got a little. It just kept getting harder and harder to do that kind of stuff, but uh, it was really great. Now, well, speaking of comedy, you and Elliot should tell them about <clears throat> cheap laughs. Uh, <laughs> well, that, um, I don't think any 
of these podcasters who read the X-Men care about we've got a lot of historians i would love to hear the story although john byrne was on cheap laugh so that yeah some, and so was all of us were yeah, what is cheap all of us were. cheap laughs yes. was uh it was a, a cable tv comedy show that a Mark shining Moon, light on a hill for Mark one world was uh was kind of the the impetus for this and um mark elliott and i were the writers and creators of this show that was on Manhattan Cable. And Manhattan uh, Cable had to put a call out for funny people to do something. And that's that's all Mark needed. He had we ran right across the street to that that electronic shop and he plunked down twenty four hundred dollars for a camcorder. He bought the that was camera. pretty impressive. Yeah, and I I paid rent on a on an apartment that was a little more than I wanted to, just so we'd have space to make a yeah. studio, and it, <clears throat> that was my contribution monetarily. And Elliot had all kinds of sound equipment and things, so you know we all kind of chipped in, and then we just had our friends be on the show that we were making. Shot it around the office. Shot it at your place. Yeah, yeah running around really Brooklyn, fun. and uh, you know, is it good? That's for the you know what? I get a lot of positive stuff back from people who see stuff. I, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah, there's yeah, a couple of still funny. There's a couple of bits that have made it onto YouTube, so it's uh, it's it's definitely worth checking I'd out. I'd love to know who, because yeah, <laughs> I don't. Well, I think Tom Brevoort put some stuff up at one point. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, because I think he transferred some stuff to digital for Mark Grunwald's tribute. Or for one of the Marvel parties that they had, uh, would be and that's what I think. You know, okay, so. but I, anyway, I had like, I had that done, and I I believe I sent you a disc. Yes, and, and uh, it's only it's only eight half hours. Yeah, but we were on Monday nights at like six or so, six or seven. I've actually got the TV guides from those days. <laughs> I know, but it was only in Manhattan, and yep, it you know, and it and it we were paying to be on, so it. It yeah. wasn't worth it after a while. <laughs> and remember, we rented we rented the space from Moogie Klingman, who a famous yes. session man for Todd Rundgren, just down the block on Park Avenue. Yeah, it was, it's editing. a lot of weird little New York stories. Yeah, and it was like it was fun to do. It was a hobby, but we really all three of us had day jobs, and uh, and Marvel Universe was part of that. So it was tough to squeeze this in. <laughs> that was that was yeah i figured i figured okay we've just gone through 12 months plus at each other's throats 24 hours a day for weeks on end months on end all year we're sitting in the in the reception area with the only long distance phone call line we could get on christmas day you and i mike taking <laughs> notes from mark who isn't yet yeah, that's how much intense oh, yeah. time we spent together he was home in in oshkosh wisconsin and we figured Oh, this has got to be a piece of cake. Oh no, this was much worse. Oh no, no, no. We, 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 we comics is one thing. Making a TV show, that's another. Whole yeah. new ball of, of of wax. Awful. But it was fun. It was fun. It was definitely fun, and it was fun yeah. to have all of our friends be involved. And the Senti's yeah. in some of it. Bob Harris is on the show. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, and Peter, as he mentioned, Peter and John Byrne were in a skit together. Mm. Yeah. So, um. Uh. We also who, who come on? Why am I blanking on on everybody else? Um, uh, Howard Mackey, 
Mike Higgins, Morelli, John Morelli, Morelli. Yep. Yep. Danny Fingeroth was Nancy Golden, married Danell Yamtov, another Marvel bullpenner, creator, editor. So we had a lot of people. Good days. Elliot, when I asked that question a moment ago, of is there obscure corners of the Marvel Universe that you are <laughs> fond or not fond of? Anything come to mind for you? Uh, no. Well, uh, gee. Um, I I spent a lot of my time in relative um, backroom obscurity. And when I became uh, assistant editor to, to, to Tom, uh, I was then asked uh, uh, almost a year later to go work for Wheezy. But minutes before we had the, I think it was, I think it was the assistant editors month book. I don't know. I can't remember now the one where um, uh, Spider-Man reveals his identity to the kid in the, in the cancer ward. Oh yeah. And you know, I remember the collector that. Spider-Man. That's it. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just can't remember when. Um, that's the best. That's the high point as far as my career went. Um, and I didn't do anything more than shepherd it through the bullpen because Tom had the script lying in his desk for, I don't know, three years. It was a Roger uh, Stern. Roger Stern script. and uh, yeah. Ron Friends, I believe, drew it. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And Terry Austin inked it. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, that that was pretty much the – that was that was the high point. That's still – and then Bob DiNatale got to take – got to get the, the prize for <laughs> That he that was issued for it, which is okay. It, you know, we're all friends here. I was just reading uh, the new Warlock Rebirth this morning, which has Ron Friends art uh, just from yesterday. Uh, it's fun to see uh, these talented books still working. Uh, Peter, any anything that showed up in your mind when I asked about that uh, kind of obscure corners question? Oh, gee, in a way, in a way, my career was dealing with obscure corners because I had to research everything, you know? So that's like, I was, so when I, like I'm mentioning the appendices and the Marvel Universe handbooks, I mean, those are not the star characters because they're in the appendix, but I still had to know about all of them or research the alien races or. Had a lot of those. There's, yeah. there's a lot ever expanding. My least favorite thing, I've, and I've said this on my show before, my least favorite thing in the handbooks was trying to keep track of all the alternate realities in their like numerical systems. Well, uh, <laughs> I, hate, I hate that one. I remember sitting in Mark's office. I had, I had literally just read an article in Science, uh, uh, Star and Telescope, Sky and Telescope, sorry, where I was, uh, they were discussing um, alternate dimensions where dimensions were folded into a proton i said okay we can't get away with this stuff in comics and then i went into mark's office and he was talking about alternate universes i said don't do it it's a cheat don't do it <laughs> this is you know just, yeah right don't it's because you know the minute you minute you kill someone you just, you just shift to the left and you got a new whole new universe to play with with old dead people or new dead people etc and that's dc's idea so why yeah. why steal that <laughs> hey you know what fine yeah i know i know but still I, I tried to say no. Well, now the multiverse is a big thing, both the yeah, DC I know, and I know. And it's also seen as a cheat by the fans. So, <laughs> yeah. But still. Well, I just think that I think the world has overdone it. It's beyond Marvel and DC right. now. It's like everybody's doing these alternate universe stories. And, you know, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yep. Yep. They did it. 
but they did yep. it without you having to know anything beforehand. Right. Going in. right. And I give them credit for that. That was that's a tough sell. And they did a good job on very that. smart. Did a very good job. Speaking right. of uh, Spider Spider-Verse movies. I mean, they're amazing to look at, but it's really just let's crowd as many uh, Spider-Men in the same room as we can. You know, and it's only gotten to be a thing because. Hey, we have three actors who played Spider-Man in the last twenty years. Let's put them in the same room and point at each other, and that's speaking, a, um, it's a thing. Speaking of the multiverse, and Mike Carlin, this may be your most fondly remembered contribution to Marvel. Ooh. I have a simple question for you: uh, What if Aunt May and Franklin Richards fought Galactus? Oh, I'm glad oh, yeah. someone else brought that up instead of me. <laughs> uh, it was the Assistant Editor's Month, and it was for Marvel Team Up. And it was just, it was my idea for a Twinkie ad. It was basically a takeoff on those Twinkie ads that were in the Marvel comics in the 70s. And I guess, were they in the DC as well in the 70s? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's like, it was just like, here's a thing that when I was a fan, it was like, oh God, they're making the characters act stupid because they want to get a Twinkie. The hostess and- fruit pie ads. Yeah. And those, yeah, that it was all for the same company, I guess. And it's like I just said, Galactus likes to eat. People eat Twinkies. Let's make a planet made out of Twinkie. And uh, and then it just went crazier after that. And because it was Assistant Editor Month, I was allowed to make it as funny as I could. And uh, I I personally, I think that's a high point in my career. Uh, and whether people agree or not is the, is. You know, they're the paying customers. They get a vote. They can live with it however they like. I and- reread it in preparation for this interview, <laughs> and it's delightful. It really does hold up. It's <laughs> it's just fun. It's just, it's just. That's it's- what I, I thought Assistant Editor's Month was supposed to be that, you know. But the reality was, you know, Walt Simonson had just started Thor. He had done two issues, I think. It was not the time to disrupt his startup of that of his storyline so that book was a regular issue and only the letters page was uh was silly and uh you know there was you know there was other stuff like iron man was drunk at that time so we did uh only a backup story in iron man there was some other books daredevil was very serious at the time so things became backup stories that uh, were funnier, you know. I did the, I, I guess I did my version of the Little Rascals for for either Iron Man or Daredevil. I don't remember. But Assistant Editor's Month to me was supposed to be let's have fun, you know. And Byrne did his uh, famous Alpha Flight Snow issue, uh, which <laughs> yeah. is fun and funny. Fun. The yep. best, my my favorite part of that is that he got paid his full rate for those pages, and that's uh, that's <laughs> funny. <laughs> that's funny yeah yeah i was uh, i was in i was in the licensed office you know i had i had star wars and indiana jones i couldn't just throw myself in right and and interfere with with continuity and and what else was there i think somebody was getting killed in one of the books i i couldn't interfere with that yeah so i i just drew myself i drew silly stories i had i had i had my buddy right. mike ink up a story for me and indiana jones i'm, I'm delivering late books and people are throwing pies at me like the <laughs> The, the darts coming out of the walls. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. 
It's fun to have but a only. diverse line. You've got your humor book and you've got your stabby stabby book where you don't have to white out the claws, <laughs> you know? It, it's yeah, fun to yeah. have a it's fun to have yeah. a lot of things in between. Well, uh, and, uh, and that uh, way people who didn't like the whole concept of assistant editors month could avoid it if they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peter and Elliot, do you guys have a favorite what if story? Uh one that comes to mind for me is what if Professor X had become the juggernaut, which is just a wild story. <laughs> what <laughs> if stories um one that I really like is one that Mark Grunewald did. Uh, he both wrote it and drew it. And it's about uh, what if um, Michael from the Avengers, the all-powerful being that you should have had in yeah, the storyline. Kovac. But his, his name was Michael Kovac. And he, um, and he sets about conquering the universe by taking on all the most powerful beings in the universe. First, one by one, Galactus and the Watcher and the Stranger, and on and on and on. And finally, he even it ends up with his even obliterating eternity, so an entire universe is dead. I just thought that is really a, an awesome and impressive issue. My other fa favorite is um, one that my friend Peter Gillis wrote, which was, what if Spider-Man had stopped the burglar and continued his showbiz career. And he becomes this, this <laughs> sleazy Hollywood producer superstar. And that was a lot of fun. Smart. Gilles it's fun to have a sense of humor good. about all this. You look at Crazy Magazine, anything. <laughs> that can yeah. transcend into the line a little bit. It is all right. Well, Crazy yeah, my, did... My, my favorite? Oh, oh, go ahead, Mikey. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, I just... It's my own. It's the one... Uh, you know, it's the what if... Uh, 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 King Conan were Bing Conan with uh, Bing Crosby, <laughs> and Tom says, "You know, I, I was I was down the hall from Tom, and I I pitched it, and he says, oh, yeah, Joe Sinnott, he's uh, he's the mad the mad uh, Joe uh, the Bing Crosby fan. He works for the fan club all the time. He'll do it, and it's my, the my first and super best collaboration ever. <laughs> and I that? think it's funny. Where is that one printed? On it I think it's in number, the humor issue. I think it's thirty four. Yeah, it I was in the humor issue, which yeah. was my first freelance for Marvel that wasn't for Crazy Magazine was writing for that issue. So that was fun. What if 34? Have you guys stayed in touch over the years? Most of um, You know, thanks yeah, to Facebook. I, I, sure. I saw Elliot at the New York Comic Con last fall, and yep. Mike came to my Zoom birthday party this year. Thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah, Facebook makes it easier. I'm on the West Coast now, so uh, when yeah, DC moved tough, out right? here, I was the first guy. I was. I kept trying to get DC to move out here. I told him I would drive the bus and we could all get in. <laughs> but you know, it was just. It was just. I had to wait my time. My time because I, I, I'm not a fan of that blizzard or the snows of New York, and the 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 heat and humidity of New York is also not so cool. The heat out here is a little different. And uh, and so far, knock on wood, no earthquakes to speak of. Um, yeah, I've, I managed to get out and visit Mike a couple of times over the years, and it's always a treat. You know, it's a thrill yeah. to see half of the old guys <laughs> who have yeah. moved from Marvel to, to DC, and then Mikey himself. I mean, a lot of the the real the real problem was that by even by the end of the '90s, I mean, there was a point where when I was at DC. And Mark was at Marvel. We had Friday night dinners all the time. Yes. Mix and match, you know, freelancers and staffers and people. We would all just get together and it'd be routinely 20 people at a dinner every mm -hmm. Friday night. And it was it was a lot of fun. 
And uh, that dwindled down as we got more and more responsibilities and, uh, and, <laughs> and people like the uh, accountant, the accountants at DC said, Hey, you can't charge this dinner on DC. These are all Marvel people. <laughs> They're never going to do stuff for us. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, it was fun while it lasted. And then sadly things like people dying started, sure. started up making it sad almost to get together. Mark uh, Mark yeah. being one of them. Absolutely. Mark being the biggest yep. one of them. Uh, yep. I mean, I know I, I had a lunch set up for, uh, with Mark and Elliot for that day. And uh, Elliot and I yep. went to lunch together still. We we it went. Yeah, it was very cheerful. It was yeah. the worst. <laughs> but we, but I mean, actually, it was good that we had that set up. It was just, it was, yeah, just it was good to share. It was good to share the energy at the time with you. It was very, very strange. Yeah. Mark very was strange. the Mark was the guy who was the only one of us who ever thought about his health and took care of himself to any degree. <laughs> We were just eating yeah. cheeseburgers and milkshakes all time, all the time. And Mac and was, cheese. Yeah, and he was running <laughs> around, uh, being, you know, athletic and 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 eating the world famous pinwheel salad. <laughs> Slenderella. The Slenderella he would get too. <laughs> These salads, he would buy salads at diners, and I'm like, yeah. it's a diner. What are you doing that for? This you can eat that anywhere. <laughs> yeah, where's you're not there's no grease on that. What's wrong with you? Yeah, and then yeah. and then he just wakes up dead. And yeah. it was very yeah. bizarre and strange. And here we are so many years later. That still weirds me out. And that's yeah, coming now, up the 12th. The August 12th is his death day. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's next week. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that that's bizarre. And uh yeah. you know and then it was it it just became, you know, different people doing like I was then interacting with Marvel to do the amalgam books, sure, uh, yeah. the Marvel versus DC thing, which was a great excuse for me and Mark to get back together and, you know, just act like the old Fun. days. And yep. then right in the middle of the second wave, he, he was gone and I was dealing with Tom Brevoort, who's a great guy and did a great job and knows his stuff, but it wasn't Mark. Was I was a Mark. teenager reading the books at this time, and Mark's uh, Mark's death announcement really got me. I was so sad. He was uh, what is probably my all-time favorite Marvel uh, creator, which is saying something because I grew up really idolizing yeah. a lot of these books. Um, okay, this is one of my final two questions. Uh, what are you guys currently reading? What are you fans <laughs> of now in uh, in your comic reading, or do you follow anything? See, there you go. I'll I'll start this since I just technically retired from dc which uh, doesn't mean i'm retired from the earth but uh <laughs> i'm not reading any comics right now because i don't get them for free and more importantly i've been buying books for 50 years books with no pictures by the way uh, wow and they're just piled up because i haven't had time to read them and i'm reading regular books real books and Shame that's, on you. that's, I'm embarrassed, but I'm not. Uh, I am reading one that is uh, by uh, a guy who worked at DC and Archie Comics uh, named Alex Segura. And it's uh, a book called Secret Identity. Alex is a friend of mine. He's been on the show. I love that book. Alex is great. The book is great. That's the, That's what I'm reading right now. 
and I love it. And uh, hooray for him. He's living the dream of a lot of comic book writers. He's a great so he's, guy. He's doing good. Yeah, and it uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Uh, he's also uh, he's also getting the sequel to Secret Identity ready to be released soon. So. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Elliot. So, how about you? Are you following anything currently? When I got when I got shown the door way back when, I was a little down on comics. I I I read a few, but uh, I was not known as a comic person. Really, you can tell by the body of my work. Um, it's all weird, technically oriented stuff, single page stories, very weird. And, uh, the rest of the books, you know, once again, I wasn't getting them for free either. And, um, I, I dipped in occasionally and then it just wasn't, I just, it didn't do it for me. I was a little, a little bitter, got to admit, a little, little choking back the tears. We were looking at books, um, these days. And I always read science fiction and I'm still, I'm still catching up on a lot of stuff. And yeah, I got, I've got a couple of mountains of books. I'm actually trying to get rid of some, so, you know technical stuff um i am uh interested in writing comics but once again they're not normal so we'll see and, and unfortunately they're related to marvel so good luck to me thank you thank you very much marvel <laughs> marvel might have evolved just enough to accept my stuff it's <laughs> i'm i'm pandering to a certain older audience i think and we'll see we'll just have to see that's fantastic. There, uh, Marvel's doing a lot of the legacy creator work lately. Uh, I wouldn't go that far to call me <laughs> legacy creator. People, people <laughs> who were writing years back are writing again now, which I think is incredible. Mm. But that was not yeah. that was not meant to be an age category. <laughs> no, no, no. I I see by your gray hairs, you're not. Yeah, I'm no ageist cracks there. Yeah, that's yeah. Funny. I'm not. Uh, I'm Unless not that's all phony. <laughs> uh, Peter, how about you? What are you reading? I still. Um look buy a couple of comics every week off comiXology i'm very glad that bill willingham has brought back fables i really enjoy mark wade's well world's finest because he captures the silver age feel while still making it modern stories with the classic characters and i've just this week i read the latest of howard shaken's hey kids comics which is his sort of like <laughs> well man i clay about the comics industry and i'm trying i figured out who some of the people are in it and others are still mystery to me but the big deal, and I love the Marvel movies, the best Marvel movies I can watch over and over again. I think that's where the real energy at Marvel is now. But one of the things that really stands out to me is that as a Columbia University alumnus, Columbia University, thanks to my friend Karen Green, a librarian there, now has a vast collection of comics. And so I try to go there a couple of times a month and just sit there for hours reading vintage comics right now. I've been, <laughs> lately, I've been working on, I uh, went, went through like Gasoline Alley Sunday strips from the 20s. I'm working through like Good Crazy one. Cat Vine for the 20s and 30s. Yeah. So I'm like, lucky. I'm not so much interested in comics that come out now so much as I'm going like a sweep of comics from Windsor McKay in the 1890s all the way to the present. I'm just looking for classics. Now, uh, Peter, I have to ask you quickly. You mentioned just before we spoke or started recording that you read the Hellfire Gala issue. Uh, tell me your thoughts. The latest one, yes. <laughs> and you want me to comment? If you would like to comment, I would love to hear your comment. I, I saw your Facebook comment on it already. <laughs> so you already know. It's like, it is just, the X-Men has, whereas there's some writers at, at Marvel and DC, like Mark Wade, or like when Dan Slott writes Spider-Man, who 
are really good at combining what I liked about these characters originally, the classic feel, while still doing innovative contemporary stuff with them. That's my, my ideal for the, for the legacy characters at Marvel and DC. Whereas when I look at the X-Men over the last several years, I mean, I, one person wrote in a comment on my post about how the X-Men hasn't really had, the writing on X-Men hasn't interested him since Grant Morrison and Joss Whedon's runs. And I agree with that. I mean, the X-Men now is so far removed from the X-Men that I liked, the, you know, like the, especially Chris's stuff. And like, and this is like a prime example because now the, the X-Men are holding the Hellfire Club Gala themselves as a celebration thing. No, that's not what the Hellfire Club is about. That's not <laughs> what the Gala, the Gala, Hellfire Club is supposed to be decadence and evil. And now it's a fashion show for, for fans to rave over. They even hold <laughs> at conventions a, a live action Hellfire Club Gala. And then, and the centerpiece <laughs> of the issue for me is Jean Grey dies again. You know what? Like, like really so horribly. How many wrecks? Has she died 10 times by now? What is this? The problem with this podcast is you guys can't see the veins popping out on Peter's head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even crazier, when you talk about the X-Men being different, the person who kills Jean Grey is Moira McTaggart, which is nuts. <laughs> I did not like that either. And you just told me before we went on that, oh, well, Jean's coming back in an issue that's coming out in a few months. And it's all, it just shows how sure. I think, well, the, I, I it's like Louise, Louise Simonson is writing a Dean Grace series. Yeah. So stop being mad at me. Stop being mad at me for X Factor. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, gentlemen. Uh, my final question, and let me just preface this by saying what a genuine delight just get, getting to hear your reminiscences and to just hang out and, and uh, hear stories. This has been really fun. Uh, Elliot and Peter, it's great to see you again. Mike, it's really wonderful thank to you. meet you, and thank you for coming on the show. Uh, my final my question pleasure. is, uh, where can people find you if they'd like to? And what are you working on now, if there's anything you would like to talk about? Uh, well, for me, I'm not working on anything right now, which is perfect after 50 years. Uh, but I, mm. I guess I hang out on Facebook every now and then. I'm glad you're taking time to rest. and rest. I, I don't <laughs> think people do that as much as they should. Uh, Peter, how about you? I am on Facebook, although I prefer being in contact with Facebook with people I actually know who are, who are colleagues in the business. But I'm at, <laughs> on Instagram, and I post every day on Instagram about comics history, so I advise people to you know, follow me on Instagram. Also, on October 6th on Disney+, Plus, Loki 2, in which Kang the Conqueror returns as Victor Timely, <laughs> a character I created. <laughs> and so... And so, yes, because 30 years ago, Mark Grunewald did a series of annuals with a storyline titled Citizen Kang, get it? Ooh. And he assigned me to do backup stories tracing Kang's long and convoluted history. And in the course of this, I was the one who introduced Victor Timely, his persona at the early 20th century. And, uh, and nobody in Marvel used the character for 30 years. But then when I watched the end, watched Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania at the post-credit sequence, there's Victor Timely. And he's he's the villain in three episodes, I'm told, of Loki 2. So I recommend everybody watch this, especially the end credits, to see if they had actually acknowledged me. Well, and, I, I, you've and been even letting more them know whether Marvel should. sends me money. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> yeah, I just, I just, uh, my, my, my blog site is, it's pretty much inactive right now, but I hope to change that again. I'm, I'm cleaning up this giant mess over here and I'll get back to scanning my film again and putting stuff up. It's elliotrbrown.com, one L, one T, all one word. And, uh, if you if you care to um, look up Mark Gruenwald when you when you do a search look up elliotrbrown.com and Mark Gruenwald I wrote what I consider a very nice tribute to Mark filled with unusual pictures and stories from his life and his the collection that he left to me for some reason but he left it to me. <laughs> uh, I've read some there. of those and I recommend them. Yeah, thank you. Well, I would recommend Elliot's website and Peter's posts. Uh, I I love you guys. Uh, there's people like Tony Isabella and a few other folks that will put up these like daily remembrances, and it's so great to just uh, step back and see those things. It's it's really fun. Uh, okay, we're gonna close this part of the conversation out. Listeners, stay tuned. We're gonna uh, go immediately into the review of X Men: The Hidden Years, numbers nineteen and twenty, which means we are almost done with this series. Uh, I, I've enjoyed the ride, but it's been three months, so I'm ready for new content. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, everybody. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Mike. Uh, stay tuned for part two. All right, everyone, welcome back to part two of X-Men The Hidden Years, numbers 19 and 20. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that incredible interview with uh, Mike and Elliot and Peter. It was very special. Uh, just a really just incredible time. I've been smiling about it for a few days. Uh, I am so happy to welcome two new friends to the show that have been friends online for a long time, but they are friends new in person that we're meeting. Uh, they are fans of the show. They are comic book nerds and are so fun to interact with online. Uh, welcome to both Christian and John. Uh, let me have you both introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And I would love to hear what is your golden era of X-Men? What's the space that you find it kind of holy or transcendent if you go back to a particular time? Uh, let's start with Christian. Hi, Christian. Hey, uh, so I'm Christian. I'm uh, from London, as you can guess with the accent, and uh, pronouns he, him. Uh, and, oh, golden, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Golden age of X-Men, it's got to be the Australia, Australian era. I mean, come on. I mean, that team was just astonishing. No, no pun intended. The astonishing is a different era. Well, yes, I know. <laughs> So I, I, I started X-Men just before the Australian era, but they really sort of got into it just around that time. So I bonded hard with that team. And yeah, it's weird going back to it now and realizing it's only like 20 issues, but it just seemed to go on forever. And it's such a good time. I mean, Inferno, the, the Genotians, the Brood. Yeah. The stakes for mutants during that era with the Reavers and Genosha. God, it's good. It's good stuff. Oh, you guys yeah. hear me broken record on this show, but uh, that's content I can't wait to get to when we get no. there. <laughs> uh, Christian, uh, tell people a little bit about your story quickly. Like, who are you? Where do you come from? So, yeah, so I'm from London in the UK. Um, I, I'm a teacher by trade. Uh, so I, I work in a school. Uh, over in West London and basically run all the IT there. So I have no sort of professional com comics thing. I'm just a professional nerd. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been collecting since 1983, two time. Um, so, yeah, over in the UK, we, we got a lot of comics in weekly reprints. So we didn't get the monthly issues coming through. We got reprints. So Secret Wars 2 
was weirdly my first introduction to the X-Men. Um, so, you know, Rachel and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it just sort of got to that stage and have progressed significantly since then into a collection that's taking over the house. <laughs> I think you and I are of a similar age, uh, oh, yeah. with very different stories, obviously, but this is my favorite thing, is joining on this show with people who share passions. It's so good to meet you, man. I do. Uh, let's go over to John next. Hi, John. Hi. Um, so I'm John Klein III. Uh, I uh, host my own podcast, Shadow and Flame with Magic.com, or that's the blog, and then the podcast. <laughs> Similarly, <laughs> and I'm so used to saying the dot com. Uh, I've been reading comics since 92. I had to look it up. I was like, when did Amazing Spider-Man 370 come out? <laughs> and then that told me the answer. Uh, let's see here. And my golden era would have to be the Paul Smith era. And that, too, is a eight issue nice. or ten issue run. Yeah. But I love that team. I love Paul Smith and, you know, Chris Claremont, Terry Austin. Or, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Bob Wycheck. Mm. And um, had it. Almost lost all my cred. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, and then my Guilty Pleasure team, my first monthly X Men team will be the 35th anniversary era with uh, Steven Siegel and uh, Joe Kelly. Oh, good. That was my original, like, first time buying. So I always have a special place for them. That era. I I was buying comics actively through high school in the the like mid to late nineties, and now that I'm in my forties, I'm realizing that was not the best era of X Men. No. Although I loved every issue that came out all the time, but when you go back, there's so much good stuff uh, ready to be plumbed in the eighties when I get there on my show <laughs> <laughs> around twenty forty then. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, I'm not in a hurry. It's all right. We could take our time. Absolutely. Uh, John, tell people a little bit about your story as well, if you would. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, pronouns he, him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm from Yuma, Arizona originally. I uh, met my wife there, and then like four months later, we not on um, not planned, but then we moved to uh, Helena, Montana to be with her or our family. And uh, we have a son, Walker Dennis, who we're super happy with. He's nine, and um, yeah, just you know collecting comics i'm all about x-men now um left spider-man a long time ago because who can hold all of that information in your head i and, mean i can <laughs> oh right right yeah well i had to commit and was like you know what oh i should say uh shadow and flame of magic uh, is based on my three favorite comic characters of all time kate pride lockheed and magic and so i'm all about kate pride kitty pride shadow cat shadow Kate, I don't know. Is that how we're pronouncing the new era? Have you have you read the new X Men Twenty Five Post I have read it. Ooh. That was oh my heartbreaking God. on so many levels. Goodness, Kitty Pride. <laughs> Logan Delicious. will be so proud. Right, I'm really excited about this new era of X Men. Uh, you guys hear me say this on my show a lot, but it's it's wild interacting with the creators as like kind of a oh. colleague as I'm interviewing them. But I'm also mm -hmm. such a huge like super fan, and I'm like reading the books, and I'm like, yay! But now I'm getting online, and I'm like, good job to my friend that wrote this. Like, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a crazy thing. <laughs> so weird. Because I'm still such a huge nerd. Uh, it's a really fun time to be an X-Men fan. And there's so many yeah. good things coming up. I'm going to ask a self-indulgent question. And I'm not seeking like, ooh, praise me. That is not where I'm going with this conversation. But I would love to hear what, uh, how you found Grey Malkin Lane. And what it's been like for you guys to visit the Silver Age through this show. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I, I came to you through Cerebro. Uh, mm. the, the ones with, with Connor in. Um, 
and once I ran out of his content, which took a while, uh, <laughs> I need I needed new things. So I travel quite a bit for work. So yeah, having new content every day has been really good. So for me, having three episodes in a week amazing <laughs> people are like slow down and i'm like mm, oh, I'm no, no, keep going keep going keep going <laughs> so the silver age is a, is a is a big gap area for me uh i sort of came read some of the havoc and polaris stuff the neil adams stuff but i you know the old masterworks because they weren't reprinted when i was reading so yeah i kind of missed most of it so going back to it was has actually been quite kind of fun and reading it with a, a different lens to just what the hell was all this about <laughs> the queer lens is easy to take to claremont it's trickier to yeah. take to the silver age uh yeah. john, john how about you uh yeah so I'm, i was just trying to trace it so i started as i'm trying to think of the ex podcast that got me there but it was definitely Oh, it was the ex-wife podcast and they mentioned oh, yeah, yeah. Old Gosh, Ogoya, Wow. Yeah, Justin and Alicia. Alicia, thank you. I was like, it's a yeah. name. Um, and then they mentioned Excalibur, and I'm naturally a giant Excalibur fan. So I got Old Gosh, Ogoya, Wow. <laughs> Which is so good as well. Yes. Yes. I love Mav and uh uh Andrew. And then um they, uh Connor was on that show, Silly Bro. And then following Connor everywhere. Uh, he was on your show a couple of times, and I love JM Demantis. And so I listened to your podcast with him, and pretty much ever since. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, Connor, that was, that, that was the same episode as me. Connor and Sarah coming on with me for that was so. Oh, yes. Uh, and JM. And I love Sarah. Uh, I just had Anna on uh, for an, a forthcoming Patreon with uh, Jordan oh. uh, with Jordan White and Anna, and we're doing Gate Crasher, and it oh, was awesome. great. It was a great nice. time. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's really fun. And the whole point of my show, as I Heck said out and I've said multiple times, is nobody does the Silver Age stuff. So exactly. it's been fun to be that guy, but it's also fun to see the show growing and making all these new friends has been such an incredible thing. Now we're jumping into a wild story in the middle of a bunch of wild stories in the hidden years in a moment. Is this a familiar series for the two of you? Uh, what's it been like for you to visit this on the show and or as fans? It's, it's been a crazy time. It's, it's been a weird time. Um, so I, I remember seeing it on the shelves at the time because it, it, I was looking at it and issue 20 came out the same month that, um, extreme X-Men started and, uh, new X-Men started. So I remember seeing them all on the thing. So I actually had issue 20 in my pool list at the time and it's bonkers. But I remember it being sold on, we're, we're going to do enough issues to fill in the gaps between, whatever it was 70 something and 94 so I, I remember remember at the time but yeah i and then this week randomly finding the three digest size reprints of it that came out at the time and it's like what a bizarre way to reprint this stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy it's story they're like five bucks each and it's just like oh that was how much they were at the time Okay, fine. <laughs> I do think there are plans pretty soon to release this all in one trade, all 22 issues, which is kind oh, of nice. fun. Yeah. Uh, John, how about you? What's your relationship with The Hidden Years? Um, I, Not too much. Uh, as being a big Kitty Pride fan, my I always like to think the X-Men start at 129. So like the Claremont <laughs> Burn era. So I should have been hooked on this show because, you know, I love Burn so much. And um, 
and I should have said something uh, with Christian. My, I read the Silver Age through the Essentials because also who can afford reading yeah. these the original way? Mm-hmm. And so you know it's all black and white. And um, but like I love the original five, but I think I love them more as a concept or as adults when they reunite. And I'm like, hey, it's those five guys. Mm-hmm. But then these, uh, you know. When this series first came out, again, I, we talked about this on the show, but it was uh, it was being produced in conjunction with Marvel: The Lost Generation, also by John Byrne, oh, which is going back yeah. to fill in the gaps of all the hero years prior to the Fantastic Four number <gasps> one. And revisiting that series and this one at the time, I thought they were really wildly fun, and they fit really well. Mm-hmm. Revisiting at this as the show host who is like <laughs> doing the X Men continuity, I'm like, this is so complicated. There's so many storylines; it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Um, this is a preemptive announcement. I haven't mentioned this on the show before, but uh, Seth Martell, who's my dear friend who does a lot of art for the show, he and I have collaborated on a few different short stories over the years. I'll do the story, he'll do the art, and uh, we'll put it out online just for fun. And he 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 came to me and said, we need to do one, since you've spent so much time on the show about Hidden Years, we need to do one short story about uh, about the Hidden Years. Like, what's the thing that you want to, what's the story that needs to be told? Uh, And I sat with it for a couple of days and I can't believe that this is what fell out. But I'm like, we need to see resolution to Avia. That's the that's the only story that has to be finished, because when we finish this, she's been all through all this shit. And then she just gets dumped in the savage land and there's no follow through on this character who's kind of the only person who's there through the whole series. Mm. Uh, So be prepared, everyone, for the Avia story (laughs) that you needed but never knew you wanted. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Non-continuity, but it's a nice resolution. Nice. So uh, we'll we'll get a little of Avia today, but mostly she's behind the scenes in this particular story. So we're jumping in today. And I, again, I thank everyone who's coming on this show for these reviews. You're jumping into the middle of a lot of crazy content. And these these issues in particular have a lot of characters in them. Uh, so we'll, we'll begin here. Previously in X-Men The Hidden Years, a mysterious group called The Promise mentally influenced Lorna Dane into joining their ranks. And it turns out they're led by a guy named Tobias Messenger, who's telepathic, but also can't speak. So he yells really loud in your brains. He's put the group in suspended animation for 10 years at a time. Then they wake up for a week and they look for a new mutant to join them. They keep hoping that when they wake up, the world will be a better place for mutants. And as referenced in our previous recording, these are picking up on stories from 1950s Marvel and 1960s Marvel that John Byrne thought, oh, they use the word mutant here. So let's bring them in. Go back and listen to the previous content. Uh, But when the X-Men investigated, Havoc and Angel were also selected to join the promise. Meanwhile, Beast, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, and Iceman ended up in a weird underground environment where the Mole Man is watching them. This is connected to the Promise's headquarters, but it turns out it's also built by the Eternals who are monitoring it because the Deviants have used it. It's really complicated. We'll get there in a little while. A third meanwhile, Professor X is shacking up with single mom Terry Martin, whose daughter Ashley he recently performed unauthorized psychic brain surgery on in order to sever her connection to her mutant powers. This is where we are starting. And this is the simplest it's been because there's only three storylines happening. Uh, my first question for you guys, what was it like for you to jump into the middle of this craziness? Most of it was all right until I got to the Terry stuff and it was like, what the hell is going on? Who is this woman? <laughs> Why is Charles here? I, ha- I half expected that it turned out to be like Moira or something. And then it was just like, what the hell is going on? 
uh, she's here all the way to the end. We, we get to, she's like on the final two pages of Hidden Years, Mrs. Terry Martin. We'll get there. So I wasn't uh, sure where Terry you? Martin was. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I wasn't sure Terry Martin was Terry Pride earlier because I was like, why use the same name of another character? Oh, I like Terry's that unpopular. But I was like, oh, brunette with a little girl. I was like, yep. what is this? There's no reason for these characters to still be here. They already solved the Sentinel problem and now they're just hanging out. She's checking up with Xavier, who might or might not be taking telepathic control of her mind. It's fine. Choices. <laughs> okay, so we're going to jump into issue number 19. I'm going to mention this once at the onset. The, the members of The Promise, most of whom have very little development. I'm going to give all of their names as revealed by various handbook entries and different spaces. If you look at the Marvel Appendix, you can find a profile in these characters, which really helps sort them out. Tobias Messenger is the leader. Tad Carter is the one that first approached Lorna. The only other character we really see much of is Lucy Robinson, and we're going to see her here. She's the blonde woman who spends some time with Angel. And again, she's in the final pages of the series, which you'll see next episode. There's also Gracie Smith, Simon Lestrin, Gene Bittner, Craig Farnsworth, and Ernest Scope. All of these characters are mutants who no one has ever done anything with. We don't know much about them, except they were pulled into the promise, and now they're wandering around the Marvel Universe somewhere, presumably. We'll see. Maybe they're on Krakoa. Uh, issue issue 19 is June 2001. This issue is called Broken Promises. Uh, John Byrne is the writer, penciler, and letterer. Tom Palmer on inks. Gregory Wright on colors. Liza Hawkins is the editor here. And if you guys remember way back at the beginning of issue one, we had Jason Liebig on, and he talked about working on this series and getting let go at Marvel right at the end. Gregory Wright also got let go shortly after this. In the next couple issues, a different set of colorists take over. Uh, I have befriended Liza Hawkins. I hope to have her on the show one day but this was a wild time when marvel was like cycling through presidents and a lot of changes was happening in the company right as this series is coming to a conclusion uh we start on a kind of odd cover beast cyclops marvel girl and Iceman are falling into a bunch of machines in these deviant tunnels uh do you guys have any thoughts on this cover i love this cover i think it's just it's it, true 60s it's just weird and yeah I, I don't know. I it, was great. it has kind of a get smart energy. That's exactly it. Yeah. 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 It's also very dynamic with like all the um, distance in there and the perspective. Like you can yeah. tell that they're going to hit some stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I, still can't, I still can't get over Gene in that costume, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah he got her out of the green dress pretty fast and kept her out <laughs> but candy southern did it for a minute the uh the caption oh, yeah. on the cover says when beckons the abyss and they're kind of falling into this weird kind of concentric puzzle this is a weird story i don't know why this storyline in, in this series if i'm honest the mole man is just one more character we didn't need as much as i love harvey elder we just there's a lot going on uh okay i'm gonna i'm gonna start with the first part here uh at the beginning we see beast yelling his classic catchphrase oh my stars and garters which i actually really love he sees a monster that looks like a giant Hercules beetle. Cyclops blasts the monster away. Marvel Girl and Iceman join them. Uh, have we been shrunk down? Have we traveled through time? Nope. It turns out we are stuck in an ancient metallic underground base that the Deviants built. And also the Mole Man and the Moloids are watching us. We shift over to the Martin House where Professor X can't sense the X-Men. Apparently there's something in these tunnels blocking his telepathic access. And Terry Martin's like, Professor, is it another Sentinel? But internally she's got to be thinking, why is this bald fucker still in my house after he traumatized my daughter? Oh, that's right. He won't leave. I can't make him because he keeps staying here. So I guess we'll sleep together. Why not? 
then we go back to Tobias Messenger, who appears to the four X-Men and telepathically yells his origins to them. And I apologize in advance, but this is what I'm doing with Tobias's voice. I'm going to read this out loud. I was born in the year 1859, and before the manifestation of my mutation during the 19th year, I was sealed in a prison of silence. By the time I was 30, my power was developed enough that I could travel abroad in the world, looking for others like myself. By the time I was 50, I had gathered a small group of mutants. None of us possessed powers as flamboyant as your own. The birth of the atomic age was still some 30 years in the future, and ours were only mi minor skills as Mother Nature herself created. Still, we found we could combine our powers, and even before America's entry into the First World War, used our abilities to help shorten what might have been a much longer conflict. Alas, death and attrition whittled away at my fragile band of mutants. By my 60th year, I was alone again. It was then that I conceived the idea of placing myself into suspended animation, emerging once each decade to monitor the progress of the world and to seek new mutants I could enlist to my cause. Okay, you can adjust your volume back to normal. This guy yells. <laughs> we got to do it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the origins of Tobias Messenger? That's my first big question for today. See, I didn't know about the whole couldn't speak, so was shouting telepathically. I was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I, I really like the concept of it, though. The, the dumping himself in tubes and then coming out for one week every 10 years. I think that's a really cool sci-fi idea. And I wish that it was, they were doing that again, just randomly picking characters and getting rid of them for 10 years and then putting them back in. It seems like a very Grunwald story. Let's gather these nonsense characters that no one's used and put them in this machine. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also kind of weirdly one of the first mutant circuits, the idea of these mutants using their powers yes. in conjunction. But you also wonder how much will any of them have because Tobias is like taking control of their minds. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly uh, in the next issue, though, when Lucy's talking about it. It's, mm, yeah. Mm, uncomfortable. And, <laughs> yeah. At the, and at the end of this, spoilers, Tobias Messenger ends up dead? Question mark. Uh, we'll, we don't know what's happened with these guys. Uh, John, do you have thoughts on the promise? Yeah, like it's an interesting concept. I'd be curious to see how much they actually influence World War II. Like anyone can just boast, like, yeah, we made it a shorter <laughs> war. Like, all right, buddy. But yeah, like you think Bobby would be used to someone yelling into his ears all the time or his brain? <laughs> but I guess he's louder than Xavier. Which yeah, he like, I, this I, guy doesn't have a volume button is my understanding. Yeah. But uh, also I imagine, yeah, like he's a lot more of a either evil or xavier or or maybe he just hasn't had enough time with only a week every 10 years to like put candy around his message like <laughs> xavier has figured out so these guys are like having a nap and then showing up to see is like is the world a better place nope let's go back to sleep now is it a better place nope let's go to sleep it's like a very boomer energy it's like our kids will solve the world's problems i don't need to do anything mm. now fuck these guys <laughs> the last time they popped out of the tubes messenger says the x-men and the brotherhood of evil mutants had formed and they're like we need to like get another mutant and go back to sleep and they're like dude you kidnapped lorna and he says your lack of trust is due to your being indoctrinated by charles xavier he taught you to be fearful and suspicious of any mutants who do not follow his own narrow precepts which is, which fair, is fair. But also that's <laughs> the same fucking thing you're doing tobias yeah, so back the fuck down <laughs> And then he fades away like Glinda the Good Witch and is like, okay, enjoy your life in this weird chamber with the giant bugs. Bye. Uh, we go back to the promise. Tobias has them all back in their stasis tubes and he yells, the day of war between humans and mutants is rapidly approaching. When they have done 
uh, uh, and mutants have prevailed as they surely must, we must be there to lend sound minds and counsel to what will surely be a long and difficult task of rebuilding the world. And Lorna and Havoc are in stasis and they will be brainwashed over the following decade while they are there. But Angel is kept out. We'll get to that in just a second. Uh, this is a wild story. It's kind of fun, but also fuck these guys. <laughs> Uh, I do want to comment briefly, if we go back to Professor X with Terry Martin, Professor X is sitting in his wheelchair, bald, white shirt, uh, looking pretty muscular, brown pants, and barefoot in his chair, while Terry Martin's in her little nightgown. There's clearly something very sexual going on between mm -hmm. these two. That's, barefoot oh, yeah. Xavier is not something I don't know that I ever need to see again. <laughs> No, no, no and, and, um, yeah, the, the, the whole wearing, because I, I thought she was wearing his shirt. Yeah, the whole oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, just, what the hell? Who is this woman? <laughs> yeah. uh, we jump back to the X-Men. Cyclops and Iceman are working together to break the group free from their trap, and they find themselves in an underground base. Uh, John, do you want to take it from there? Tell us what happens next. Sure. Yeah, and so they uh, are making their way down. Uh, Gene says, like, you know, this is fantastic, which always, I don't know. I mean, I imagine it's setting up the Fantastic Four, but it's a shame we never get them saying, well, this is uncanny, but that's my own personal. <laughs> like, why don't they use their own adjective? That's why the Inhumans took it later. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so Bobby begins his streak of getting things right as he predicts that the Moman's probably involved. Um, and Bobby's like, it's so hot down here. I can't keep my yeah. eyes on. <laughs> and then so he de-ices and we see that he's wearing his short shorts and his um go-go boots which is always like oh that's right bobby you don't wear anything under all that ice <laughs> um we see that the complex is massive and there's a giant fan of um the size of a baseball field so this place is gigantic uh, Hank does that irritating thing where uh, he refers to something simple in the most complex way, saying this vertical mass relocation unit. And, and then Bobby's like, an elevator? <laughs> such a dick. I know. I'm like, really? Like, I guess. Which I always imagine writers of beasts are always like, oh, let me break out the thesaurus and make this guy obnoxious. I mean, at least at this point, he was chunky and hot. But, you know, he's still a right. dick. <laughs> Oh, and then uh, Bobby hopes they don't get um, sucked up by the fan. And then, of course, he gets that right and it goes up. Have you guys seen Willy Wonka, like from the original, like the early, like, yeah. late 70s, early 80s movie? And they, they're getting sucked up into the fan and then they have to burp to get themselves to like lower to the ground. That's kind of yeah. what I wish would have happened here. <laughs> right. Film is a fever dream. <laughs> And then I'm realizing, like, oh, if Angel was with them, they could probably just, like, like, he could just fly everyone out, or if Polaris was with them, they can, like, she would just mess it all. So it's, like, interesting plot-wise. Like, oh, yeah, he took away the two mutants that made this thing last three extra minutes. Um, and Beast is like, and we're, it, getting, uh, we're getting sucked. And Jean's like, I'm using my powers. That's why we're still getting sucked. It's very uncomfortable, this whole scene. Right. And then um, he, and then, hey, and then uh, they ask Scott to um, start blasting anything he can. He's like, I can't reach my call, my uh, button in my mask or the button in my glove. And Bobby's like, well, Gene, can you do it? And she's like, I'm doing so much. <laughs> but but then like she's saying they're holding on. And then Beast is holding on. So when he lets go, the whole team flies up. 
and um there's this ridiculous like, so like what, image on page 16 of beast holding on to a pipe holding on to yeah. scott who's holding on to gene who's holding on to bobby they're getting sucked into a fan it's so stupid <laughs> but also like what was gene doing then if she was holding everyone down like clearly beast was or hank was doing it <laughs> but whenever that happens i always do like to note like who's holding who so I was like, Beast holding Scott, holding Gene, holding Bobby. I'm like, I guess that's the safest or like the best option for those four. Yeah. And, and then, oh, and then there was an interlude of Lucy opening up the chamber. And that was like, oh, who's this? But we find out who that is later. Yeah, the, cha the chamber things just, yeah. <laughs> You, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> and then uh, Scott blasts the fan and it does nothing. And then they go, and then there's a mesh lining that's stopping everyone from getting um, destroyed by the fan. So it's like, well, then that was three pages of like, if they had done nothing, they would have ended up in the same exact spot. Mm -hmm. So it's like, all right. Scott, your I beams didn't work. We're still getting sucked. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It but there, there's and a then, lot through this whole series where it is that. So three pages later, they could just completely no prize it away. It's like, oh yeah, that that yeah. doesn't really matter. We're just gonna move on now. Board of right. And then Bobby bit. gets his third. Oh yeah. And then Bobby gets it uh, a third prediction correct when he's like, "Well, the fan turns off now. We're going to be in trouble." As they try to work their way through the mesh, and then it turns off, and Hank finally is like, "Will you stop predicting things?" <laughs> And then we get a great right. panel that matches the cover, which I always like when, you know, the cover happens in the book because it, yeah. you know, this era of team shots and no story <laughs> issues. It's just nice to see. Yeah, they, they pass through and a then, hole into an orifice, into a cavern. There's a lot of vague subtext here, guys. <laughs> right. And then Gene's slowing their consent with a TK bubble. And, um... Oh, and so and then Scott's like, can you make it softer? Which she's like, oh, sure. And it's like, oh, I didn't even know you could do that, Gene. Like, all right. And then it turns out Bobby was right. The mole man's there. Uh, Scott and Hank are the only ones not to be knocked out. But then mole man knocks Hank out. So I'm like, well, okay. I'm glad we mentioned they weren't both knocked out. And then the issue ends with um, Lucy before, waking up Angel. Before you go to Lucy oh, yeah. really quickly, Subterranea at Marvel is one of the most ridiculous oh, yeah. and wonderful concepts. It's an entire underground like world that apparently goes around the whole Earth. There's all these yes. different races. We've talked about Tyrannus and Mole Man on the show a little bit. The Deviants live down there. Sometimes there's pocket dimensions. There's all these old tunnels. Giant monsters live in these. And like then they go hang out on Monster Island and then come back underground. Mole Man is a character who has access to a lot of the technology and the power there. So he is a very weak person, but he has access to armies and technology and like ancient monsters that make him quite powerful. And I'm actually a big Mole Man fan. Are you guys Mole Man fans? Is this a character that you like? He is not a character I've given a second thought. <laughs> but then I'm not, a bit, unless, unless Jennifer's in the team, I'm not a big Fantastic Four person anyway. Oh, so, sorry. you know, and yeah, but actually he was kind of fun in these two issues. I he didn't need to be there, but no one no one is requesting this but me, but I vowed to do a trial of the Mole Man on my show one day. I oh, vow. Yeah. <laughs> John, are you a Mole Man fan? Well, as a 90s guy, um, like you know, he the Fantastic Four cartoon, like I feel like he's a classic <laughs> Fantastic Four villain who can like show up anywhere. He works in 
superhero squad. He works in like, you know, he's just always fun. And, you know, he's always erupting from the ground in a fantastic way. Ah, pun intended, I guess. Wow. <laughs> uh, but and so, you know, and also the first appearance, um, he's part of that iconic cover, uh, which the next one's a homage mm-hmm. to. And um, so, yeah, like I, I feel like I get plenty of him. Oh, I'm also a big new Fantastic Four fan. That's probably my favorite team with Spider-Man, sure. Hulk, Ghost Rider, Wolverine. So he's very involved in that story um so yeah i I like mo man enough but also i don't miss him (laughs) (laughs) for context and we'll do again we'll do a whole trial more mo man is four foot ten he's a little dude and he dresses in like green operatic like fantastic like uh, i'm the phantom of the opera kind of energy with a big purple mask he can't see lives under the ground and commands this army that serves him and he carries like a little walking stick that can fire things at you and he gets to yell things like reading his speech bubble here you have entered my domain once again x-men here it is the will of the mole man that rules over all and it is my will that none of you shall ever leave this place alive and i he's i i almost want to see like eartha kit playing the mole man <laughs> he's, he's delicious uh, high <laughs> yeah the morloids are amazing <laughs> <laughs> I love those little guys. They're so cute. And they're just uh, following what he says to do. Uh, okay, now you can close the issue out. Tell us what happens with Lucy. <laughs> oh, <right>? sure. <laughs> and so Lucy's crying. She needs Warren to help her escape as she's no longer happy staying with the messenger as he's still in years of her life away. Which I guess is the problem of the messenger. It's like, yeah, like on a Tuesday you agreed to do it because it sounds like a good um, mission. But then you realize like, oh... 30 years have passed in three weeks and like, you know, I imagine that will mess up your brain. Yeah. And there's no undoing it. Like you can't be like, oops, I grabbed the wrong, you know, soup. (laughs) But Lucy has found a way out of the promise and she thinks the pretty angel should go with her. I don't blame her. Mm -hmm. We'll get to, we'll we'll get to these characters next issue. Uh, Go ahead, Christian this whole issue just felt like a video game it's like every time they solved the problem they went to the next level and the next level and each level was completely different to the last and I had no sense the thing I'm most frustrated about with this issue is there's like nine pages of the X-Men crawling around these tunnels or getting sucked into the fan and there's so much going on in this series when we get to issue 22 it all like has to wrap up so fast there's no room for anything and there's real estate here that could have been used I could have been fine with a one page of the Mm -hmm. oh no we're getting sucked into a fan it's fun but also yeah let's move on. So I will say it does bug me when comics don't get to issue 25. Like, remember how 25 issues were so important? But I think like, the, 20, the 22 like they was always planned because it was to fill oh. the, number, the the issue gaps. So oh, it was actually 22 yeah. issues of gap. And that's yeah, smart. But you'd think, though, that you'd know how you could plot 22 issues if you know going right. in. You've got 22 issues. <laughs> Issue number 20. Yeah. is an homage to Fantastic Four number one. Yes. And we've actually we've actually never taken time to talk about this, although I should have. On these covers, there's a corner box, which is really fun, that has all of the original X-Men characters' oh, yeah. heads uh, kind of stacked up in that like classic style, which was kind of an homage to the 80s books, right? Which is a fun mm-hmm. thing for them to have done in the early 2000s. It gives it kind of a classic feel. 
but you get uh you get Xavier, Gene, Lorna, Warren, Bobby, Alex, Hank, and Scott kind of all crammed into that corner box. On this cover, we have the giant mole man's monster. That's literally what this guy's called, bursting through the ground. And it's an homage to Fantastic Four number one. Uh, Iceman is in the place of the human torch here. Gene is in the place of the invisible girl. Beast is in the place of the thing. Cyclops is in the place of Reed or Mr. Fantastic. Uh, it's a fun tribute cover. Uh, and this issue is called Worlds Within Worlds. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on this cover? I uh, So I was going to ask you this as the handbook guy. This monster never gets a name, does it? It's like the most iconic monster in Marvel yeah. comics and never has a name. It's just he's the Mole Man's monster. Now, there are a lot of monsters uh, on Monster Island. Many of them have had names, and a lot of them are named after the sound they make. Like, here's Screal, <laughs> oh. the monster, because that's what he's named. Uh, and some of them have very specific names, like Tricephalus. Uh, I, I would love to do more Monster Island stuff on my show one day. Uh, we do get to see Monster Island in this run, which is fun. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, the Mole Man's monster, he's just a big dude. He's uh, he's around a lot. I like him. He's great. <laughs> He's psycho. He's a he's a big old green thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, John, do you have any thoughts on this cover? Yeah, I mean, I love a homage cover, and of course, you know, homage to the very first Marvel comic. And so, you know, it's always fun. I always like to do the same thing, like who replaced who, and once again, all those make sense. Like Iceman would replace Bob, uh, you know. Um, Iceman replaced Johnny, I mean, and then yeah, the girl replaces the girl, and the big guy, the big guy, You're like yeah, like it all sort of just like how else would you do it? And it's John Byrne doing a homage. Like, and I think he did one for the original run in his Fantastic Four, too. I should have compared the two, but I'm pretty sure he did one. Oh, guys, Everyone though, does one. I totally screwed up. I had to look this up. This monster's name is Giganto. He doesn't oh. have a name. Oh, oh okay. Giganto, the uh, the big green, like, gaping maw guy. Uh, okay. Sure. He's, he's just a big, a big old one. green guy. I like Giganto a lot. That really sounds like yeah. a name that a teenage Johnny Storm would have come up with. <laughs> right. Uh, he's worthy of his own Patreon episode. Maybe one day. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going cover... to I'm gonna cover a bit of continuity quickly. Magneto is used in this series a oh. lot. He gets dumped into the Savage Land, which we've covered on my show. And then in continuity, he finally shows up in Fantastic Four numbers 102 through 104 in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four number 102, 104, all three of these issues we are going to cover on my show in October and November. And I've already got the talent booked and it's going to be amazing. But the basic premise here is Magneto gets found by the Submariner. He convinces the Submariner to go to war with the surface world. Then he kidnaps Sue Storm and Lady Dorma to force Namor to keep fighting, and then he gets defeated. That's kind of the quick story. Now, in this issue and in the next one, we see these issues directly referenced. Magneto is teaming up with the Submariner here. A lot of the dialogue that's pulled in this issue is directly from that original story. Oh, really? Fantastic Four. But what John <sighs> Byrne has done here, which is fun, is put Xavier in the battle. So he's got like Xavier's astral presence present. So apparently Xavier was there the whole time, the original Fantastic Four story. And that's the part that's additive here. So this is the final Magneto story in The Hidden Years, which goes all the way through number 22, uh, which is a lot of fun. Do you guys have any comments on that? I, I've never read those issues. I know we just got to dig them out. Well, the fun part of my show is you get to read along. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so cool. Because I'm just reading this and thinking, this is some cheesy dialogue. <laughs> that <laughs> makes sense. Some pure uh, Silver Age. But oh, yeah. does Magneto's blue part of his costume 
Or is mm-hmm. those because that stands out? I'm like, I don't think I care for this blue accent piece or this metal. I don't know. Yeah, that's from the original. I... That's from the original Stanley oh, okay. John Bashema story in Fantastic Four. Uh, the he the has a gun for some reason. His costume. Yeah, Magneto's got a wild journey. He's getting a lot of airtime on my show this year. We're doing a whole Magneto prequel month in October, oh, and then gosh. like November December is going to be a lot of Magneto in the early 70s when he fights the Fantastic Four and then the Inhumans. Uh, oh, wow. He's he's got some of his weirdest stories ever. Yeah. We'll get there. If you've heard the trial of Magneto on my show, we reference these stories in that trial. But it's going to be fun to go there and do it issue by issue. <laughs> Uh, so in this book, in number 20, we open up and we see a beautiful shot of like Atlantis, like purple and green <laughs> hue underneath the ocean. Uh, the uh, the kingdom of Atlantis is ruled by the Submariner. It's centuries old. Uh, there's a lot of history tied up into this place in Marvel in general. But Magneto is on Magneto's, uh, Magneto's on the raised raised dais where uh, namor is sitting in his like clamshell throne wearing his like green briefs gold bracelets and like a fur robe this man is so gay <laughs> okay so atlantis right water how is the fur still so floofy I just don't... <laughs> oh, yeah. is, is he got his own little air pocket around his floofiness it's just doesn't... are they and, and how's Mag? Because I, I assumed the blue thing on Magneto was like an air bubble mask thing. And it's like, oh. they're all in air. And all and of it, the Atlanteans are supposed to be blue, but they're colored yeah. as Caucasian here. There's right. some interesting things going on, but that may have been Burns' direction at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Magneto is yelling, neither you or I are truly human name, or neither of us will ever be trusted by the world above. Therefore, why not join forces? Think of it, Submariner, your power combined with mine. Who could hope to stand against us? And Submariner's like, uh, I don't really trust you. Like, <laughs> there's not a lot of reason to trust. Uh, you hint at war, and I have ever striven for peace, which Namor says. And bullshit, Namor. <laughs> like the most war-happy person I've ever seen. Uh, he goes, but there is truth in what you say. Perhaps I should mistrust uh perhaps excuse me greater perhaps than the mistrust i feel toward you and he's like think upon my words name or think long and deep uh, magneto's flirting it's so- oh yeah yeah uh, he's, we- he's, he's hot for some name <laughs> am i just- right in thinking burn did the namor series where he was Mm-hmm. Nuts, basically. Oh, yeah. Burn has spent a lot of time with Namor. He was also doing fantastic four for a long time so this yeah. guy i mean he's got a pulse on the marvel universe for yeah. sure uh we just jump- felt like the right Name the right name on us. <laughs> we jump back to the Martin house where Terry is just bringing Xavier tea because that's all her. She's that's all she's here for now is just serving this man. And he's like, Oh no, my X Men are missing, but now there's something else. And she goes, You sound like Obi Wan Kenobi. I sense there's a great disturbance in the force because I wish it was as frivolous as that, Terry, but I fear it's not. He senses Magneto and he says, The next few days may number among the darkest the world has ever seen, which it's not. You'll forget about this story soon. <laughs> Uh, the X-Men are back in Subterranea. They are, like, being carried away by mole men or moloids above, like, pits of lava beneath them. It's a very kind of cool scene. And uh, we see Mole Man sitting in a throne on a, like, small raised dais. It's like some sort of leather chair he stole from some estate sale or something. <laughs> There's statues in the room. There is, like, a fountain trickling in the corner. And he says, bring the prisoners before me, my mindless slaves, before the Mole Man. I sense they are nearly all awake. And they wake up. <laughs> and uh, Cyclops gives a good read. He goes, I knew you always had a big ego, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. We were all knocked out. Like you didn't defeat us. And 
Gene's like, we stopped you from being killed. And the mole man's immediately pissed. He jumps out of his throne and tries to hit him all with a stick for a couple of times. He's like, I will have you. He like just swings it at all of them. But, but he uh, does more, more than try. I mean, this is daredevil level shit here. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of the thing with him is if you're in his tunnels, nobody can operate quite like he can because you can't see in the dark as well as this guy can. And Gosh. he has like super senses. So he's whacking him with his cane. He hits Bobby like right in the stomach. Uh, and then when he starts to feel overwhelmed, he hits a button on a wall and it opens to the Valley of Diamonds. And there's giant diamonds behind the wall, which glisten. And they're like, oh, no, our eyes. And this is a this is a thing from the Fantastic Four. He has like this room full of diamonds that gets used in the comics um, from time to time. Uh, it's a ridiculous yeah, because it came story. out of nowhere. I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, same here. And I was thinking, hold on. Doesn't this guy just do like petty crime on the surface world half the time? <laughs> Diamonds, he wants attention. This is why we need to do a mole man trial because I love a campy villain and he's ridiculous. Uh, Gene goes, oh no, the light is like daggers through my brain. And it, it's it's really quite effective. They get defeated by diamonds, which are not a girl's best friend in this case. <laughs> uh, and Iceman's like, well, then we'll have to cheat. And he covers them in a wall of ice and he, he has running water in the chamber. And the Mole Man uh, immediately then opens another panel and the giant giganto mole monster pops through. And they're like, oh, no, it's a giant monster, which I don't even know how this guy has room to move in here. <laughs> yeah. Then he summons a bunch more monsters. There's a purple guy and a black guy and a gray guy, and they're all just attacking. Uh, I don't know. I hope you guys are Mole Man fans after this. Do you have thoughts on this uh, this encounter? It's ridiculous. Honestly, it kind of made me like him at this point. I mean, he, he took out the X-Men without breaking a sweat. All right, admittedly, he was dramatic about it, but he took out the X-Men. And this is his, like, third time fighting them. Like, he's he, they're his foes at this point. Yeah. Uh, John, do you want to visit the Valley of Diamonds? I mean, I well, it goes back to Christian's um, video game ref, uh, comment about like, yeah, like in every other step, it's like, and behind this door, <laughs> diamonds. Behind this door, monsters. Like, what's going on? Like, how can't be? Like, You've beaten the first level monsters. Now I'm bringing five of them. <laughs> and I went back to check, and that stick is not glowing at all. Like, he's literally hitting them with like a wooden stick. <laughs> He's just some grumpy old man. Like, get the fuck off my lawn, you damn kids. Uh, I I love this guy. He's great. Uh, We jump back to Angel, who's flying over the city with Lucy Robinson. And Lucy's power, we will soon learn, is a little bit Purple Man-like. Yeah. She can give you an order and you got to follow it, basically. It's not mind control. It's not telepathy. But if she gives you a suggestion, you have to follow it. So it's a little like Empath. Yeah, Yeah, Empath was who I thought, but Purple Man too. More like the voice of doom, if you guys know that random character. Like, if he oh, says wow. it, you got to do it. Uh, oh, she's, yeah. she's interesting. And Angel's like, hey, you got me out. Why can't we free Lorna and Alex? And she's like, they will die. Like, if we rig their stuff, they will die. <laughs> Which turns out to actually be true. You think she's lying here, but that's actually true. She rigged Angel's machine and her own so that they could leave. And now she wants to go find her family because she hasn't seen them in the 30 years that she's been in stasis. Uh, <clears throat> we then jump back to Beast, who's like crammed into this little panel. <laughs> He's like all hunched over. Uh, <laughs> his big toes sticking out. Anyway, we're back on the battle with him and the Mole Man. Uh, he's jumping around thinking about how they're going to get out of this. Uh, and uh, they, they Cyclops shoots an optic blast. So they're fighting these monsters. This issue is a little bit more streamlined than the last one. It's kind of more mm-hmm. focused on this fight. Uh, did you guys have thoughts on this opening sequence? 
No, I, it's it's quite a decent little battle, actually. You know, everyone gets their own little moment, and yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's cute. Uh, <laughs> Kristen, will you close the book out for us? Sure. Oh, well, I was um, going to make a comment. Oh, please. Um, about uh, Cyclops, uh, right, right before we get back to the angel scene, Chris, are you going to mention the out of character thing? Oh, yeah. It's just uh, he, he turns around and blames Hank for being out of character, for being chased by a giant beetle. It's, uh, it was a giant yeah. beetle. Of course he was going to run. <laughs> No, but like he mentions it twice. Like he's like, that seemed very out of character. I was worried he might be still thinking about Craven. And then he's like, oh. he was running away from the giant beetle. That seems out of character for our doc. Like, he, like he's very focused on, like Scott's very focused on Hank being very out of character. Like, mm-hmm. what is happening here? Well, and go to the last the episode, go to the last episode where Craven was hunting Beast in this very series. And it caused Beast to go feral, like Berserker. He like had to give into the Beast part of his brain. Oh. And so that's but kind of a back- reference oh, to yeah. that. Like, are you okay, buddy? Because you just went through this. Oh, but he God. mentions being out of character back, back to back panels. Yeah. Are we going to have to go or back like, all really this way to him then? <laughs> oh, or just listen to the episode right before this one where we review that's that very content. There we go. <laughs> but he really wants us to know he's out of character here. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes he I, th- I think this is this is the start of the evil beast. That's what it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. He's been there the Scott's whole time. Scott has a read on him. Mm hmm. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I mean, basically, that Scott and Hank bounce around. Uh, then we're back to, back on the. Is, so is it the X Jet or is it the Blackbird at this point? I don't think it really has a well, name. I thought this no. was. But I have to say, oh, the I thought this was their, this... their plane. It it is the X Men's plane, but uh, oh, okay. like, there's a spot where it has like the X Men logo on it a few times. Do you see it Branding. on the wing? Yeah. Oh, I see it now. Fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for a secret <laughs> secret paramilitary organization, Xavier is pretty good at, you know, putting your name out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, this is that the ship money. they use this one or the the Sentinel, the the ship they acquired from the Sentinels. They're hopping around in those in this series a lot. Right. So, uh Warren and Lucy, isn't it? So, Warren and Lucy are going back to see her family after 30 years. Um she explains that uh when she left her oldest boy was 10, he died in uh Vietnam, which really dates when this was written then. Yes. And they come to the gate and there's a child of some description there it's the standard marvel problem of you're either a moppet a child teenager or an adult you can't be anything else (laughs) he's somewhere between eight and 14 i can tell you how old uh and it turns out he's actually mike who's her lucy's son's son so her grandson uh mike comes to the door and realizes it's his mother who hasn't changed her face at all in 30 years and now actually is younger than he is and they decide to have a bit of a chat in the house and mike understandably starts to crack open the beers he is knocking them back because he's like decades older than his mother who disappeared when he was a kid honestly this guy it's the saddest pages yeah, it's this is kind of what I wanted out of the whole promise story that actually yes. it's kind of dark and they d- and for all of Burns' problems, he actually deals with the fact that this woman disappeared for 30 years and then just keeps popping back up actually kind of well because the son does not deal with this well. He kind of starts with it okay and then he's yeah, no, this isn't right. 
Yeah, he's like, fuck you, mom. Like, even if you've been missing 10 years at a time, you could have at least visited. And she's like, your father had me declared legally dead. And he's like, you were gone for 20 years. Uh, What I thought was interesting, though, was she turned around and sort of, she she undercuts any agency she has as well. She says, oh, I was just an ignorant housewife with no real education, no real goals. (laughs) I didn't even understand what her messenger meant. It's like, you knew enough. You know, you got in the pod. So when he said he put people... Well, by the time I opened up the second time, she's like, oh, 20 years went by. Exactly. You know, even the first time, you're going to pretty much know this. (laughs) Somehow I got confused and didn't understand what suspended animation was. Okay, I'm sorry, messaging, you know, and the promise needs a good HR department because their their policy of getting people on is not good. Worrying. You know, and maybe talk to some of the people who were doing this already. <laughs> this is a good scene. I actually like this character, Lucy. I'll, yeah, I'll save yeah. some of my thoughts for her because she's going to close out the series for us. But she's a good, she's a good potential supervillain. I yeah. would love to see more of her. Yeah, she sort of came out. I went in thinking, who is this? What, what is going on here? And actually, by the end of it, it was like, oh, yeah. And actually, the son, I was thinking, okay, yeah, he's going to be like Church of Humanity. Yeah, this guy joined Orcus, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. He, he, he was recruited by Joel Guthrie. You know, it's just yeah. holy crap. Yeah, I he, mean, when you he, he jumps immediately around. to like bad enough, my mom's a mutie, but now there's this freak in my house as he turns That's back to exactly what's happening. Though yeah. so I have to admit, yeah, when he turns around, turns around to Warren and says, "Look, it's bad enough to find out my mother's mutie, but I don't need you adding your two cents to this." As well. <laughs> okay, yeah, put Warren in his place. He kind of deserves it. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's like Warren's lucky there wasn't a handy brick nearby or something. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, all right. He'd been drinking, and his mom, who's been dead for thirty years, has just suddenly reappeared. But well, and fair to note, Warren just buried his mom in this very series. Just so this, of, yeah, because this comes up a, a, yeah. a, a, a bit later on, and I hadn't put two and two together on that that context there. But yeah, actually, this is opening up all sorts of wounds for Warren and but yeah I, th- I think the fact that it doesn't end with the nice happy family everyone hugging it out and actually Mike just tells her says I'm done with you get out of my house and I don't ever want to see you again you know also you're younger than I am get out because <laughs> This is creeping me out, yeah. And but the 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 kid who doesn't get a name is just sort of sitting there watching this. Is like, oh, this kid is gonna be messed up. He he doesn't know what the hell is going on. This woman's probably never been mentioned. So, um, well, Warren... and Lucy's Lucy's plan was to show up after decades missing with a man with wings and be like, I'm home. But like, what was she expecting to happen here? <laughs> Exactly. Yes. You were not thinking this through, woman. You know what? What was her end goal at this point? Because I couldn't work it out. Of, I think it was just a. I think it was just to sort sort her own brain out, and also to stop Warren going to help the X Men. But they go back right. to the yeah. go back to the X Jet. She finally admits that. Yeah, I may have forced you into doing this through my creepy coercion powers, and and I love this. Warren, could you not sense this? You've been with Xavier for like five years at this point. Surely you're used to this. Where's the red triangle resist? Yes, yeah, <laughs> I was exactly going to say that. Right. Yeah. Obviously, they've not been trying doing the red triangle resist yet. But yeah, I think they need to be learning that quickly. Um, Although Lucy but- did decide not to use her powers on her kid, which she specifically yes. says that felt wrong. So maybe she's learning. We'll see. Yeah. 
I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see her come back and, you know, either be a completely out-and-out nightmare or yeah. just, you know, have actually patched it up with the family. Yeah, I'll spend just a second here quickly. If this woman becomes some sort of supervillain, her origin story is, I was a suburban housewife in a yeah. different time. I got pulled out of this and put in suspended animation, lost my family. Now who the fuck am I? There's like a Captain America energy about her. Yeah. And also like a self-entitlement to her based on her powers uh, she's like the evil side of Wallflower in some way. Oh, yeah. There's, there's some interesting oh, things yeah. that could be done with this character. I think it's interesting. Yeah. And then we go back to the bald and the beautiful. I mean, seriously, what are they, these two? Um, Terry decides to interrupt Charles, and he does not like it, to put on the news. And it's Reed Richards. Um, admitting, I, the way I read it, he's admitting to Ben Grimm causing a war crime on live TV. It's a... One of my partners launched a missile towards the center of the magnetic oh, yeah. pulses. Is that hold on? You don't really want to be saying that on live TV about your premier hero team. This is not good. He's trying to get ahead of it before the press can get to it. Like, <laughs> like I did it. I did it. Mind you, I mean Crystal's there. She'd have messed it up anyway. I love the fact oh. that Crystal the, and Sue are both here because the people's is princess. Fabulous. She's, She's amazing. And also, Reed Richards is a white billionaire living in a high rise in the middle of New York City. Yeah. He can get away with this guy. This man nuked Monster Island at the end of <laughs> Fantastic Four number one. Like he's, yeah. he can get away with whatever. Yeah. He also true. finds lame reasons to not cure Ben. Like he's like, oh, that's right. Like it's always the fifth thing on his to do list that day. He always gets distracted. The first thing. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. Basically, I think the the whole point of this live conference is to basically say that there was magnets out there. So, you know, Charles being oh. the in love little woman that he is, just basically says, oh, "Magnets, it's got to be my husband." Yes, now nobody is now. I can go back to him. Um, and just basically nopes out of that house straight away. <laughs> you sometimes goes, you sometimes forget that Xavier can astral project. So this is a different side of telepathy. You can yeah. enter someone's thoughts, but he's able to send his spirit outside of his body, like to very Doctor Strange like. Yeah. And he spends and, he spends some yeah. time floating around here. Also, Magneto and, and it's visible as well, you, which I hadn't realized. Yeah. Only only when he wants it to be. But Magneto can also right. astral project, and these two can always sense themselves. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. So Charles being. Absolutely in love with Mac. Uh, what is it? At this point, he isn't even Magnus, is he? Just, he's, he's just, just Mag nope, just Magnus. Magnus. So, oh, okay. goes off to goes off the Atlant the Atlantean fleet, uh, which uh, Magneto's uh, in in charge of. Uh, basically, I, I I love the line where Magneto basically just turns around and says, "You're you're dead." Oh, reports of my demise were read somewhat exaggerated, Magneto. It was another who died in my place. Yeah, he died in your place. Don't just dismiss him like that. Poor changeling. <laughs> wow. You know, but then Magneto just comes back and says, oh, I suppose you just brought that team of brats with you again. <laughs> oh, I like this. Sassy Magneto is, yeah. Yes. Just, and Xavier's just, um, bluffing. Xavier doesn't know where the X-Men are, but he's like, they're actually right around the corner. Attack <laughs> you any moment. Yeah. I think maybe. Okay. And yeah, at that point, uh, Magneto just decides to call his bluff and uh, a load of Atlantean warships rise out of the water in, uh, in uh, Manhattan, I'm assuming this is. Uh, and yeah, some, yeah. Gr some great colors yeah. on this page, this last one. And, you know, next, Armageddon. Uh, well, no There's... other cities exist, too, so well, it has true. to be Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's three things I want to mention really quickly. Uh, if you have not yet read Jam DeMatteis's Magneto number one, oh. it's brilliant. <gasps> so good. Uh, and he posits in this series, I'm going to spend some more time on this. Uh, again, we're doing a whole Magneto month and I've got a Jam DeMatteis interview set up again. So Fabulous. I'm very excited. But uh, he posits that Magneto in the 60s was sometimes trying to raise the level of mutant threat to get humanity focused on it to like, hey, we're a big deal. But he would also sometimes allow the X-Men to win so that the people could look at the example of mutant saviors that existed. Namor is also, excuse me, Magneto is also obsessed with Namor. Namor is a mutant who runs his own country and Magneto is obsessed with running a country. Mm -hmm. Namor seems to be one of the few people in the original Silver Age comics that Magneto respects. And here we see him using uh, Namor's fleet uh, through manipulation and coercion to be the thing that attacks. So it's almost like he sees Atlantis as the possibility of a mutant nation, which is really interesting. And we'll talk more about this dynamic in the next episode a little Mm. bit. But do you guys have thoughts on on that, the the Magneto-Namor connection? I've never really considered it in terms of Namor being like where he he wanted to go. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. yeah, he's kind of got that imperious stuff that Magneto is hard on for all the time anyway. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting parallel I've never really thought of. Magneto's like, man, I want a seashell throne to sit in. <laughs> I want to sit in what? my Speedo and have people worship me, please. But he gets it. He gets it in Octopus Heim. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, John, do you have any thoughts on uh, Namor and Magneto? Well, I guess now that you've mentioned that, I am thinking about Scott during the Utopia era and how like one of his first thoughts he had was like gotta get namor and imagine yeah. magneto was like yeah scott you gotta get him well like, and do you remember do you remember the scene when magneto returns from space and arrives on utopia and he bows down before oh, yes. cyclops okay. who's the mutant leader magneto has a respect for like mutants who take power and namor yeah. has always been that there's something the job there's an interesting bend with this character who's obsessed with making the humans pay like you know the humans will kill us we got to kill them first which is all the magneto was right shirts yeah but something about him and uh, his respect for people who lead but his disdain for charles <laughs> who wants to like share this with the humans which is played out during the hellfire gala yeah i'm not gonna say magneto was right but Xavier, <laughs> Xavier, to follow his dream, uses his powers to like send mutants to their deaths potentially, so he can save humans, and the humans die anyway. So Magneto yeah. was right; like <laughs> it always lands there. It's an interesting thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that Magneto was right, but Xavier was definitely wrong. <laughs> mm, it's yes. complicated, as he often is. Magneto is so complex. The only other thing I wanted to spend time on very briefly, we get a rare moment of hubris from Angel. Uh, He just saw Lucy get rejected by her kid. And she goes, are you okay? And I just want to read his little speech bubble out loud here. He says, see, I lost my own mother just a couple of days ago. I've been so busy since I haven't uh, allowed myself any time to think about it. Now... Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, she says again, are you okay? He says, I, I spent so much of my time away from home as a kid, boarding school time with the X-Men. I, I guess I was never all that close to either of my parents, poor little rich boy, huh? Mm. So it's kind of an interesting rare moment of vulnerability for Angel, which I think is special. I mean, it's, it's a lot of self-awareness for Warren Worthington, you know, I mean, (laughs) it, it actually makes me feel sorry for him at this point. And that doesn't happen often. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we've got Havoc and Polaris, or Havoc and Lorna in stasis. We've got the promise threat. We've got the X-Men battling the Mole Men, but unable to be reached with all his monsters in Subterranea. 
We've got Xavier still shacking up with Terry Martin. Uh, and now we've got Angel with Lucy. And we've got Magneto launching an Atlantean fleet, which crosses over with an old Fantastic Four story. See, and 40 pages. Barely anything. Yeah. <laughs> I could be tied up there. Do that, do that in an issue. We can have an issue of nothing afterwards. Uh, thank you to all the listeners who've been super supportive and have had kind things to say about this Hidden Years coverage. I'm so pleased that we took the time on this show to cover it. Not one issue at a time, because that would have been too long. <laughs> Two issues at a time. You know, yeah. we're still spending like three months on this show, which is a which, which is a long time to cover the Hidden Years. We have one more episode left, and I'm very excited. Then we're jumping back to Magneto Flashback Month. And then starting in the early 70s is how we'll finish out the year and begin in the early year. I had a message from someone the other day, uh, like, I'm so excited for you to get to Giant Size. And I've had at least seven or eight creators say, Chad, I would love to come on your show, but not until you get to Giant Size. But guys, right. it's going to be like another year, <laughs> maybe more, because I'm not I'm not in a hurry and it's OK. You're you're on the hero's journey. <laughs> I, there's so much content and, and, and everyone has done Giant Size. And as much as I'm very excited yeah. to get to Claremont, I'm happy to be the person that's taking his time <clears> to get absolutely. there. Absolutely. And there's a lot of stuff here that you know, at least now we can get hold of it with Unlimited and all that kind of thing. That you know, there's stuff here that you've gone through that I've never read before, or have yeah, read or heard of. In, yeah, exactly. You know, so well, you know, and I, nice just, I create these incredible, indelible memories. Hearing Danny Lore and uh, Bob Quinn laugh about the Conquistador, or <laughs> or uh, you know, Stephanie Williams talk about Miss Delusia. Like these moments um, on my show with these obscure villains are some of my very yeah. favorites along the way. It's a ton of fun. I, I mean, we have read poor Avia for filth so many times, but I do have an Avia story that I'll put out, and it's much more sympathetic. Good. <laughs> my regular reads of her. <laughs> oh, by the way, Avia's just... just hanging out at the mansion because she got poisoned by Craven. That's that's where she has as, as uh, these two issues. Someone has to answer the phones. I mean, right? Because you know they never use them. My favorite part of these couple yes. of issues is the. I mean, I like the Lucy Robinson stuff a lot, but mm. the Mole Man's attack is my favorite part. Uh, it's also fun to just see Magneto unhinged. Uh, do you guys have any favorite moments as we're wrapping up? I, th I think the the Lucy bit surprised me at how deep it actually got in the end. And um, yeah, I think that's probably my favorite bit at the moment. Yeah, I think Lucy probably really benefits from being, uh, uh, you know, close to being an original character. So Byrne can do whatever he wants mm -hmm. with it. Like, I don't think it's an accident that it happened no. like that. And I do like the idea that we see both Namor's and Moman's um, thrones, and you can contrast <laughs> them with like a couple flips of pages. Be like, oh yeah, I like that. Like the simpler taste. They did. Uh, like, who's they did some really to fun. Impress? If you guys read Priest's Black Panther in oh, like the late nineties, I love that. There was a couple really fun things where he was exploring what it means to be a king because Black Panther is on the throne, right? And he would bring like Doctor Doom from Latveria mm -hmm. and Magneto from Genosha and like a few other characters in. Uh, it's always a really interesting concept. Mole Man has a throne and Namor also has a throne, but they're both Fantastic Four supervillains. And Doctor yeah. Doom is their biggest one and he also has a <laughs> throne. And Magneto yeah. really wants a throne. <laughs> it's it's entertaining. Uh, you guys, this yeah, is so fun to get to know you and to nerd out over X-Men together. I hope this is fun for you to revisit. Oh, it's been great I, fun. I've already got loose plans to have you yes. both back on the show. Uh, Christian, you and I, I'm going to take the time to announce this now. Christian and I are doing a Patreon on the character Demolition Man. Uh, Dennis Dunphy, D-Man, queer icon, sad sack, weird, crazy history that we're going to delve into. Uh, I love this character. Uh, so cool. 
And Christian loves himself a burly gay. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm well, he's had quite the run, too. Oh, yeah. He has a weird, he has a weird chronology. Uh, I just finished my notes on him last week. Pete Sandlow's. He was Scourge. He was the Scourge at one point. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. <laughs> it was bonkers. And now he's like a now he's like a transgender group mentor for superpowered right. trans kids. It's a great place to put him. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, all right, you guys, as we're wrapping up, uh, where can people find each of you online? We're going to put this episode out on August 28th. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Uh, let's go with John first. Sure. Um, well, you find me at um, shadowandflameofmagic.com, um, YouTube, I'm a, oh, and the podcast, same name, uh, on Twitter and YouTube. You did, it, I, um, did the dot com again. <laughs> I know, I did. I, I'm many my i need to write down my outro on the podcast because i will always start with dot com like oh well that's the blog and you know blah blah but um and then um i'm on twitter or x twitter whatever it's called um and youtube uh as jackal s-i-i-i and um it's mostly a lot of fortnite uh, videos where i try to make uh, any character i can into cake pride <laughs> and so or buying any x-men characters which hopefully when that 92 um animated series comes out they just flood that game of cyclops and everything but um oh and by august i should be i just launched my a bonus episode of um where i cover inferno but it's mostly through ioyana's journey because that's where my collection is and i've been because i'm pretty sure i read inferno as i was buying the back issues and so i never read it start to finish so i'm like oh i'm gonna do this i i i need to read this so i should be doing that that's stuff i'm looking i'm i'm all about at the moment fantastic john i love what you're doing online i love our interactions it's so good to meet you oh, yeah. and thanks for coming today uh and then over to Thank christian you. so uh yeah i haven't got anything to plug so much um you can find me on whatever the social media of the moment is going to be on Twitter, X, Blue Sky, Instagram. What else is there? Oh, threads, whatever at this point. I don't know. It's what is your mess. handle on those things? Uh, it's all Chris E1701. So it's all been consolidated under one now, finally. And so, I'll tag you both, of course, when we put this Fabulous. Uh, and then lastly, I know my enthusiasm on this show can get uh, annoying, but I'm really excited about everything that's coming up this year, you guys. <laughs> We're recording this in early August, and uh, there's so many great things happening this summer. The show is booked into November at this oh, point, wow. and with plans wow. moving into December. The trials that are coming up, the the stuff that we are recording soon. Tomorrow, I'm recording the trial of the High Evolutionary, which will come out at the end of the month. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Uh, which is so fun. And I just wrote the trial for November. Uh, the December plans have been made. Like, it's, it's really really fun putting this together. There's a part of me that just loves making lists and then checking things off of lists. <laughs> and this show so has satisfying. been like just a slow journey through a very long list. Uh, and now I only have one Hidden Years episode left and it feels wow. like a weird professional accomplishment, <laughs> in a yeah. way, which is very fun. I'm very excited. Uh, so watch for announcements. Uh, okay, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. The two of you are welcome to add me if you'd like. But I uh, I can be found on Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore land on Instagram. I am also on Discord, Blue Sky, and Threads, although I'm still getting used to all of those. Mm. Social media is exhausting for me, but I do have a pretty good A game yeah. on Twitter and Instagram. I've never even heard of Threads. 
Threads is the new Instagram message. Oh, it's fine. We'll okay. see. I'm getting there. <laughs> I had a TikTok for. I hate learning new things. I'm old <laughs> enough. I'm grandpa enough yeah. to like hate. Anyway, next episode about immediately after this is going to wrap up the hidden years. X Men Hidden Years numbers uh, 21 and 22. The guest stars on that episode. The featured guest is going to be Elliot Kalen. Who wrote, he's a brilliant and hilarious writer, but he wrote the original Sauron line of, I don't want to kill cancer, I want to turn people <laughs> yes. into dinosaurs. And I'm so excited to meet Elliot. Uh, Gregory Wright's also joining us to finish out the hidden years. And Erica Schultz is coming back. I'm oh, so excited. Awesome. The next Patreon episode out immediately after this is going to be all about General Guyen Gokkoi, and I'm not saying that correctly, uh, who is the evil uncle of Karma, who like fights Wolverine a bunch. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and my my guest on that episode is Trung Li Nguyen, who uh, wrote the Karma oh, love story. So oh, that's amazing. Uh, we just recorded that, and it's wonderful. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, by the time this comes out, I will be done with FlameCon. We get to do the Mutant Fashion Review panel at that show. I will also be doing that so panel great. live at FanX, as well as uh, teaching a couple of classes and moderating some panels at the Uncanny Experience in Minneapolis Ooh. in September. Fantastic. I will try to take audio recordings of all of those and make those available as bonus content on the show, but I'm genuinely excited about each of them. Uh, and there's some really cool other professional things coming up that I can't announce yet, so I'm really excited. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Christian, and thank you, John. Uh, thank you earlier to Mike and Elliot and Peter. This has been a delightful composite episode to put together. Uh, we will see you back here next week on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane.